the TetraCast. It is June 27th, halfway through the year, and we're still here. Uh, I am your host, Brian Vitale, and joining me today are Adam Vitale. Hey, guys. James Galizio. Hey. And George Foster, who has woken up in time. Hello, everyone. <laughs> it's good to have you back. So we've had another it's busy week of... Yeah. It's another busy week of news. We've had a lot of new trailers and announcements here in the middle of summer. But as we always do, we're going to talk about what we've been playing kind of in this little bit of a gap between the uh, the fall upcoming holiday season and the onslaught of games that we had in the late spring. Though we did have one major release, obviously, within the last week that uh, I'm sure George will spend time talking about. But before we go to him, let's go to... Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Adam, what have you been playing this week? I think it's a game that a lot of RPG fans might uh, enjoy hearing about. Yeah, so um, with a little bit of lull and new releases coming out for RPGs, um, I decided to go back and play a few uh, other games. And one game I wanted to play was uh, Valkyrie Profile. And Valkyrie Profile is a game I've already played on PSP. And... But I wanted to, I just, I felt like replaying it for a couple of reasons. First of all, let me kind of just step back and, you know, maybe set this up a bit. So Valkyrie Profile is a game by Triace. Triace is a, for if you don't know, is a, a Japanese development studio that kind of branched off of, um, it wasn't uh, Bandai Namco, but it was, or Namco Bandai, or Namco at the time. But it was um, it was started by members of the Tales of Antasia development team, uh, Wolf Team, that made that game for Namco, and they they kind of created their own studio called Triace, which they named it that based off of like the three people who started it. You know, they they're kind of high on themselves, I guess, and called themselves. I'm gonna say Tri-Ace. that's high opinion of themselves. <laughs> um, and their first game was Star Ocean, and that's kind of their their main series. But one game they also developed back in like 1999 I, I something like that i don't have the dates in front of me um is valkyrie profile and valkyrie profile is a very interesting rpg in my opinion because it is very different from most other rpgs both in terms of its story structure in terms of its combat in terms of its uh uh there's lots of weird mechanics in the game that don't exist in pretty much any other game in the genre and it's got that it's got some of those typical trice flares as well and so it's always after i played the game originally you know it's always kind of stuck out to me as being a very unique interesting and cool game so valkyrie profile the premise of this game is that you are a valkyrie who is basically a servant for the gods in a a norse mythology and ragnarok is coming and you're about to be battling other 
like godlike armies, but you need people to fight for you. And what these gods do, Odin, your boss, basically tasks Valkyrie with collecting souls of the dead, of dead humans, to basically fight for them in, in the afterlife. And so uh, that's your premise in the game, is to visit the world that you're on, and you basically experience the game in this sort of vignette style where you meet these humans who are who have passed away and recruit them. You fight various battles with them against various monsters and various storylines. And then uh, this is when you start to mix the actual gameplay elements into this premise where what you have to do in this game is you train up these these warriors, which are called Einherjar, which is kind of the Norse term for it. You train them up, and some of them you can keep, but some but you have to send some of them back to Odin to fight these wars for you. And so it has this really cool um, premise where you you don't really stick with a team for all too long. You basically have to continually find new warriors, train them up, and send them off. And the game does not have, at least not at the beginning for about the first half of the game or so, doesn't really have like a front-to-back front to A to B storyline. It's instead these kind of miniature stories that you're experiencing between these different characters that you have. Uh, Pretend I'm stupid. Paint the, paint, paint the story in my head, uh, or not the story, paint the image in my head of what does game look, does it play and look like Star Ocean? Is it all side-scroller or what is it? Just like paint it in my head for me. So there are so many different elements to this game. Uh, so it's kind of hard to know what I should talk about first. But its its combat system is very unique and has basically become um, an inspiration for a lot of follow ups. Uh, one that actually came out just last year. So it's a it's a sprite based game, and it's also it's also a side scroller. So you are moving in dungeons from left to right and sometimes into the screen and out of the screen. If you if you get what I mean in a side scroller, yeah, like the two and a half D or whatever you want to call it. Right, and. Um, so in battle, you, you basically encounter enemy icons on the field, and that throws into a battle screen. In battle, you have four characters, and they're each assigned to one of the, the DualShock's face buttons. And so triangle O, square, and X, or cross. And basically, how, how, how battles work is depending on the character you have and the weapon they have equipped, you can press their face button, and then they'll do an attack. And so you, if you want, you can just press all the buttons at once, and all the characters will attack at once. And sometimes that works, but that's not really the most efficient way to play because uh, these characters have different timings and different numbers of, of attacks they can throw out. So you kind of have like this rhythm timing element to the game where you might want to have a slower per like a, a, a unit that that is slower. You might want to press their button first because it takes them a while to wind up or, or whatever. And then a, a unit who basically attacks immediately, you might want to press their button a little later because you don't need, they'll just you know, immediately attack. And depending on if their moves maybe throw the enemy up in the air or down on the ground, uh, you have to basically know when to time these attacks. And then if you do enough hits in a combination, you can do like a special attack after that. And there's lots of different combinations to, t to characters and weapon types that you can throw in here that all will change the types of uh, attacks you do. And so this sort of combat style has kind of become an inspiration to a lot of later games. One game that actually came out this last year was Indivisible, which basically 
was heavily influenced directly by this game and any game that has that sort of structure where it's you know 2d sprites characters atta attached to face buttons and you know you're pressing face buttons and sort of a a timed combat system that's basically uh, valkyrie profile kind of initiated that um other games this is actually there's actually another triace game called a uh, oh, what was it shoot uh, maybe exist, describe it to me. Exist Archive. Exist Archive was the one that they kind of came out. It took me a while just to remember what it was called. Uh, one of those like, uh, very awkward, yeah, awkward, not one of those meaningless kind of names. It doesn't mean anything. Just that's the title. All right. Yeah. Speaking of names, I think Valkyrie Profile is kind of a, a neat one because um, so about the structure of this game, Valkyrie Profile, ultimately, the game kind of does become a, like a, a story about Valkyrie uh, in a way. But the structure of this game is very, very awkward. And um, it's one of those things that if you're not already familiar with it, kind of learning it is not very intuitive because it's not like anything else. And how it works is that the game is divided into chapters. And basically, at the very beginning of chapter one, Freya, who is basically Odin's right-hand man, only woman, right-hand woman, uh, is basically tasking you is like, here's how the war effort is going. We need this sort of warrior. Please find the sort of warrior and send them to us. I will check back with you later. And then you get so many actions that you can perform in that chapter before Freya will basically uh, forcibly come back with an update. And depending on what you did, what you did or not, she will either reprimand you or praise you. And if she praises you, she gives you items and money and stuff. So you have to be careful with what you do. Like you can't just visit every city willy-nilly. You can't uh, just go into dungeons over and over again because eventually you're going to run out of time. Now it's not actually like a running clock that you're up against. It's kind of like a number of actions that you do. And so you kind of have to visit around the world, um, experience some of these storylines, and go into some of these dungeons to train up units. And then each chapter, that's basically how each chapter is, is divided. More units will become available, more dungeons will open up. And so it's kind of awkward to know what the best way to approach the game is, in a way. And this also leads to one of the game's kind of weird issues is that it has three different endings and getting the quote best ending is very obtuse and awkward. And the reason for that is interesting on its own in its own right. So uh, how do I put this? So there's an opening in the game that sort of teases what Valkyrie's background is, but uh, throughout like the Valkyrie first... is the, uh, the protagonist. Yes. Well, the protagonist's name is Leneth, but they kind of sometimes they call her Leneth and sometimes they call her Valkyrie. So like you know, title. It's kind of interchangeable. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's actually the game was called Valkyrie Profile on I never mentioned it. it was a PlayStation One game. Uh it was called Valkyrie Profile on PlayStation One, but then when it was re released on PlayStation on BSP, they actually called it Valkyrie Profile Leneth. And then the game had a sequel called Valkyrie Profile Samaria on PS2, which is a different Valkyrie. And there's also a third Valkyrie as well named Hrist. And sometimes you'll actually see people like maybe mention like they should make a Valkyrie Profile Hrist. And that, the reason why is they sort of assume like, well, the other two, other two Valkyries got a, got a game. So the third one needs a game now. Um, it's been like 15 years, but still waiting on that game. 
But anyways, Lanith or Valkyrie, um, throughout the first half of the game or so, she's pretty a pretty stoic character, kind of just like a servant for the gods. She's a god herself, but kind of just working on their behalf and basically doing what they tell them what they tell her to do. But then around the halfway point of the game, you start to see more teases about who she, her past and her background and learn more about like the actual ambitions of Odin and Freya. And the worst ending in the game is if you're a bad Valkyrie and you don't send up people and you waste time and things like that, eventually Freya will actually get pissed off at you and basically fight you like a super boss. And it's, it is possible to win, but very, very hard. But to be honest, it doesn't matter. If you get to that point, you basically get the bad ending. And then the standard ending to the game, which is the ending you'd pretty much always get if you kind of basically understood the, the general basics of the game and just kind of played it normally, is where you basically just are a good Valkyrie. You, you provide Freya and Odin with the support they need, and you basically survive the war effort, and you get kind of a normal, relatively satisfying conclusion. But then the true ending, which is the obtuse one I mentioned earlier, you basically have to visit these certain flags that kind of hint more at Valkyrie's background and also more of the true ambitions of Odin and Freya. And you have to do this in a very particular way to do to see this. And it also involves another character named Lezard, who ends up being like a major antagonist in the series. Um, and you end up getting this kind of you this resolution of Valkyrie's true story in that point and that's why it's called the true ending but it's very weird to get and so you also might see people say like you have to play Valkyrie profile with a guide in order to do that and you yeah you kind of pretty much have to so it's one of those things you kind of have to keep a guide up at hand if you want to see it because it's very particular in how you do it it makes a lot more sense the second time through playing the game but uh it is one of those things it's like maybe this could have been a little bit easier to to achieve maybe just have some standard flags rather than it's got like a point system involved and i won't get into the yeah, details I, I, I will be honest when you mentioned like a true ending that requires a guide i'm kind of like oh man really like long extended sigh like that's the worst type of true ending i think true endings in general i think can be really tricky to make it feel like natural i i just hate the general idea where it's like this is the best ending like if you don't get this one then you haven't done as well as you should i do think like the general idea of it is really really cool like don't get me wrong i love how this game is presented uh and the way that it builds itself around like the story structure and gameplay structure of this i think is really neat there's also uh being a triace game triace if you've played any of their games have kind of this flavor of of being mechanically weird and that they have all these different subsystems in place that aren't really like most other games and that you kind of have to know your way around them in order to play the game well. And one of the systems in this game is how you basically get money and items. So there are no shops. There is no gold. You don't buy weapons anywhere with like money that you can earn in battles. Basically, when you send Freya, your warriors, she will depending on how good a warrior she send, you send, uh, she will basically give you materialized points. And with these points, which is a very limited resource, you can basically materialize different weapons and armor. But since you can only get that, that currency at like these certain points in the game when you send Freya, 
you know, your warriors, it's, it's a pretty limited resource and you have to be very careful with how you spend it. But if you know what you're doing, you can, uh, you can kind of abuse the system and get really good weapons and armor relatively early on. There's also a bunch of different skill books and accessories and items you can get in dungeons. There's a whole transmutation, trans, transmutation system in the game where you can turn items into different items that I won't even get into. You can, uh, you can actually break down items into materialized points in a way. And there's just all these, I won't get into all the details, but it's just, it's just kind of this mechanically weird game that if you played any Star Ocean, like the first two Star Ocean games have all their like sub uh, skills for the different characters. And this Trius or Valkyrie Profile doesn't have anything like that, but it still has a similar sort of flavor to it that I personally really like because it, it's kind of mechanically dense and uh, it's, it's weird and confusing in a way, but I think that kind of makes it cool rather than just, you know, grinding for levels and gaining EXP and the, the, all the standard stuff. You know, it's, it, it's, it's, I find it just kind of fascinating in a way. So why did you decide to play this game again? Because it seems like you were familiar with it and then decided to revisit it. Yeah, so I actually played the PSP version first. One reason for that is that the, uh, the PlayStation disc is very rare. Um, if you want to buy it secondhand now, it's about $150 or so, roughly. Um, I actually did want to play it a while back, but it was rare, even back then. But then they announced the PSP uh, version of it. This is like mid-2000s, so a while ago now. Um, and I played that because obviously that was much more available. And I loved it. Like I fell in love with the game in a way. But the PSP version, this is when it gets kind of weird. So when this game originally... Oh, now came, it's getting weird. No, the, the release scheduling, I mean. Uh, so when this game, Valkyrie Profile, originally came out in Japan on PlayStation 1, back then, of course, it took like 9, nine to 12 months to, to localize the game. But it was also very common back then that when this game was, was localized to North America, they actually basically released an upgraded version of the game. It had It fixed some bugs. It added some just quality of life things in the North American version. Like, uh, for example, there's an item sort button. You couldn't sort items in the Japanese version and a few other additions. Um, one of the bugs, for example, is there's certain enemy bosses that basically didn't do their special attacks for whatever reason. They just kind of stood there and did standard normal attacks. And they fixed that in the, uh, in the English version. But when they re-released the game on PSP, they didn't base it off the English version. They based it off the old Japanese version that didn't have those bug fixes and new additions like the item sort. And then when that PSP version was localized, it was still based off that version. So it kind of had this. It kind of has this weird, uh, uh, basically detail that the North American PlayStation One version of that game is the only version that has these bug fixes and these uh, quality of life additions. It's not in any of the PSP versions. It's not even the recently released mobile version as well. Because none of those none of those versions were based off that North American PlayStation One version, so it's kind of weird like that. But also, the PSP version ha it removed like the two D anime styled scenes from the game, and instead used like a CG style cutscene um, throughout the game. And I, I don't mind that, you know, personally, like that's fine with me. Uh, but just kind of get to play the game with sort of a slightly different experience. I wanted to just play the the PS1 version, not only for those bug fixes and those um, quality of life is quality of life additions, but also just you know it'll play the game with a different sort of different different scenes that I get to see throughout the game. 
also the PSP version being, you know, slightly widescreen, it, it kind of, I, I believe it slightly stretches the image and crops it kind of like a lot of uh, standard def to, to, to widescreen formatting. It wasn't, it wasn't like a perfect wide scale, like uh, modification. I, I know what you mean. So it's one of those things that like your sprites are slightly stretched uh, horizontally and things like that. So there are some purists who are like, ew, this is absolutely gross. Um, we got to, you know, you have to play the, 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 the standard, the original version with the original aspect ratio. So it's like, you get that too. So it was one of those games. I liked it a lot. It's been a while since I played it. This is a different version I can play. Um, so did so you, did you did shell out for the, uh, for the PS1 version? Yep. <laughs> oh, dedication. This, I, if I, I wanted to play that, is that my only option? Well, you can play the PSP or the mobile version. Um, I think they're. I think that game, like that's the game I, you know, played first, and I adored it at the time. And that's the reason why I went out to buy the PS1 version. So I think you're fine going that way. Um, like the mobile version is probably the most. The, so the thing about the PSP version is that version is not available digitally either. So if you want to play that, you have to get a PSP UMD or pirate it. But not like not something you can play on like Vita officially. So the mobile version is actually the uh, the most like easily accessible Convenient. version. Yeah, yeah it's, it's kind of weird because that game only that version only came out like last year, and it's actually like a mobile game that is you know a premium game. You, well, it, it has a few like cheats you can buy too, but otherwise, you know, well, you can just buy the game standard like it's like fifteen dollars or something. And play well, I mean. It. Isn't like uh, Square Enix like one of the few companies that really still does like premium mobile games like that? Because I do know like uh, Scarlet Grace came out on Android and iOS same time as uh, PS4, PC, and Switch, and it's a full yeah, game. Uh, so. Yeah, I think so. And there's also Crystal Chronicles coming out. Uh, that how, how the Crystal Chronicles mobile release is working is you 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 can download the game for free and play like the first three levels, and then I think you for the mobile version you can like premium by like the upgrade that gives you the full game so it's not really an in-app purchase it's more like a key unlock i um, will to do that is that recently um razor has released this like kind of clip-on gamepad for phones that people have been really enjoying because it's actually pretty good quality because like i've been down for maybe playing more games on phones since obviously like the switch is bulky you don't want to always take it everywhere and like even the switch Lite is pretty huge and um but the main thing that was kind of putting pushing me away from really trying to play more games on phones was like touch screens. It's like I want a controller, and like pretty much every controller available for phones was like either sold out immediately or it just wasn't very good to begin with. So the fact that um, I I don't know what I'm trying to say here, but I feel like um, there is a market there for people that maybe would want to play more traditional games on phones, and hopefully now that. Uh, Razors like released something that hopefully will continue to be sold and hopefully like will grab a marketplace. Maybe uh, maybe we can see more games like that, like not just from uh, Square Enix. That would be nice. Yeah, like personally, I'm not a big fan of like the gotcha style games where it's free to play and then you basically get banners and then you can pay for more opportunities to get you know random loot or characters or weapons or whatever. Um, I did download Valkyrie Profile, the mobile version, and played a little bit of it. I think it works okay, but it's, you know, using like a 
the, the game is not like an action RPG or anything, so you don't need a lot of like really precise movement. But it's still like a slight platformer in ways, and you're using like a virtual D-pad and uh, tapping to jump and things like that. It's not perfect, and maybe I'm just not used to playing on phones. But using a controller to play it, the phone version to play it, just like you know the PSP or the PlayStation version, you know, would probably be better. Um, I'm, I'm assuming it supports controllers, but I'm actually not sure that version. So I haven't really talked about like one one reason why I really like this game. I kind of explained to my the best I can what the game is like, but maybe this maybe this is actually kind of morbid in a way. But uh, this game being a vignette style for 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 most of it, it's kind of interesting uh, that your character is basically seeking the souls of dead people, right? And you basically see a small storyline for each of the characters you recruit. And first of all, I just kind of find that structure interesting in its own right. It's not drawn out or overwrought. Like you kind of get these very economical stories. Um, it's very, very efficient in the dialogue that they use. It's not, um, it's very quick and to the point in a way. And I kind of personally really like that. But there are, all these stories are inevitably sad because they're basically about how these characters died. And some of them are really well done, I think, in terms of like you kind of get attached to these characters with a quick, you know, kind of a quick glimpse into their life and maybe some tragic ending that they had. Um, for example, uh, there's a, here's one of the more tragic ones in a way. There's a character who is basically half mermaid, half human, but and is basically ostracized from their mermaid home, goes to try to find their parents' home, and her, her dad, her, her human dad, and is ostracized from her mermaid home, but then realized that her, her mermaid or her human, oh, I'm totally messing this up. Her human dad passed away like years ago. And she had spent so long trying to find him realize that she'll never be able to see him or never be able to meet him on her way back home. She basically falls into despair and kind of, uh, gets sucked up in a whirlpool and basically dies. And it's just like really it's kind of, morbid. yeah, it's well, it, every single one of these stories ends in death. Like there's a character who is tortured. There's a character who um, goes off to war and dies. Um, but some of them I think are really well done. And it's actually one of the things about the sequel, Valkyrie Profile Samaria, that um, I actually am not really a fan of is that in that game, you kind of collect your your warriors just from random pickups on the ground. Like you literally find a sword in the ground and it's like, you have found, you know, so-and-so, a samurai, and that's it. Like there's no story. You just pick them up and they join your team. Uh, but I really like that vignette style. And it has like this mood and this tone to it and that I'm just really a fan of. And I think it's really well done. I love the art style. Obviously, it's, it's obviously not the same like design, but it reminds me of those uh, little bits of prose that you find in uh, Lost Odyssey. Yes, 100%. Like I actually realized that playing this game. There's a lot. One thing about these stories is that it shifts your it shifts your character perspective, and that who is actually like narrating and talking is that character you're you're seeing the eyes of their life. Like it'll actually change. Um, it'll it'll actually it even has those screens where the screen turns black and basically just text is going along the screen, which is that character, basically their inner thoughts are talking to themselves, and so you're like you're seeing their perspective of everything, and it's it's literally like those sort of Lost Odyssey. Uh, a thousand years of stories or whatever where it's you know there are moments where it's just text and dialogue 
um, on a backdrop that you, know, you don't even get, um, it's not even like sprites at that point sometimes. And it's, it's, it's moody. It's well done. There's one, there's one, uh, there's one story where a shrine maiden has to basically offer up, uh, some blessing to some shrine. And what's kind of really sad about it is that she is a foster child and she doesn't have like the shrine maiden bloodline. And her parents know this, but she's sort of forced to go into this uh, ritual. But what will happen after the, in, in this ritual when she does it is that the parents, the, her foster parents' true daughter, who passed away in the past, will basically be revived. And basically just the way this, this setup was uh, this, in this city that they're in works is that she basically was forced into this, had no choice, but also she kind of wanted to do it because she felt like she loves her parents and her parents talk about how they miss her actual child like all the time. And so she kind of felt like this is what she had to do. And so she, you basically see her going to the shrine and performing this ritual and basically reviving the parents' real daughter at the expense of her own life. And it's sort of out of love, but also out of obligation. And it's, you know, there's just lots of stories like that, which, like I said, is kind of morbid in a way, but that's just kind of how the game is. And I, I just think it works really well. And it's this sort of story structure, this sort of tones, this sort of gameplay style, just really no other game like it. And that's one reason why I like it so much. So if I wanted to play this game, my best bet is the uh, mobile version right now. Yeah, that's that'd be the most easy way to play it. Just buy that version, you know, play it on your phone or an emulator. So or we should petition Square Enix or whoever holds the purse strings here to put it on PC or on PSN or something. Hey, it's it's kind of like that Final Fantasy Tactics situation where it's like, hey, you you made a mobile version of this game that's honestly pretty good. You can take that version and put it on steam like kind of like they did with the chrono trigger or whatever you know you have to adjust a few things but you clearly took the property and did something with it recently i i don't i don't think it's impossible to ask to that you could take that same property and make some tweaks and put it on steam even if it is just a mobile version port it's for the most part what you need you just need maybe a slightly different ui and uh, some other tweaks, and there you go. So that that would make it very, very available. We can only hope. But th no, it's kind of cool that you had the opportunity to visit a game that you felt so strongly about, and were able to share uh, a bit of what your experience was uh, here. Uh, let's just move on to James. Uh, you put up a couple features on the site recently about a novel, the visual novel that you read the last couple weeks. So what do you what do you have for concluding thoughts on Higarashi when they cry? Um, well, kind of talked about it in my review, obviously. And uh, one of the problems with talking about visual novels is that they're not games. So there's not really much I can talk about in the way of gameplay. And since the sum of its parts is a story, and that's the reason people read it, I don't really want to talk too much about the story because it's going to spoil it, especially when it's a visual novel where the story itself is a mystery, like Kid Rashi is. So um, I guess I'll just kind of re-sum up some of my thoughts from the uh, review. Um, Higurashi's weird for a couple of reasons. First off, most visual novels, and I'm sure like even like you all, um, when you think of visual novels, you think of choices and how there's like various routes and stuff like that, right? 
Yes. Well, that's like um, my that's like that's like if you ask me what my understanding of a visual novel is, you you basically given one hundred percent of my answer. Well, the thing about Higurashi is that not every visual novel actually does have choices, and the types of visual novels that are basically nothing but a linear narrative are usually called sound novels. Now, I don't know why they're called sound novels. Higurashi itself is split into eight chapters, at least for the main story. And chapters one through seven are 100% linear. Like there's two points where you can make choices in, in those seven chapters, but one of them is not part of the story itself, literally doesn't have any impact. And the other part, it doesn't matter which choice you make, the story continues the exact same way. Yeah, Higurashi is completely linear, which means that for visual novels, that's actually kind of difficult because that means that the base story has to be good enough on its own to make it engaging without having, having to um, resort to the choices and the actual like mind games about, okay, what do I need to do to progress the story forward? And the other thing about Higurashi that I kind of mentioned in the review is that... Um, I guess inherently, um, visual novels are generally going to be made by smaller development studios because since visual novels are inherently linear, they're not usually going to be 3D. They're just like 2D portraits, music, backgrounds, and text. Well, obviously, like even if you don't know how to code, there's plenty of like software out there where you can make visual novels all on your own. And uh, one of the ones that's very popular is Enscriptor, and that's what Higurashi is based off of, though Manga Gamer's version of it is ported into Unity for whatever reason. But even as far as visual novels are concerned, Higurashi is a very small development studio. Like, the vast, vast majority of Higurashi's development was completely comprised of Ryukishi 07, or a, um, seventh expansion, the one dude who did the um, writing, he did all he he kind of did the music for the first half, but really it was just like royal like license free music that he found online, and he did the artwork. And the artwork is very very basic because Ryukishi isn't really that much of an artist. So like I'm not sure if any of you have read. Well, I know that Adam read the review obviously, and he probably can attest to what I'm talking about with the uh, character um, portraits and whatnot. But it's like, they're very basic. I wouldn't say they look bad per se, but they definitely look um, very amateur. Well, it's, I, I noticed there's two different art styles and this is my perspective. It seems like the newer art style is sort of this samey cutesy anime art, maybe not cutesy, but kind of like the same sort of anime style that's pretty prevalent almost everywhere these days. It feels like where like the original art is this kind of, Maybe amateur is a word, way to put uh, way to put it, but it's got like this different sort of like I don't even know how you describe it. It's more colorful. Uh, or I saw or, like they're not even like proportioned always. Like, I saw James can... tweeting about it, and like this might seem like a weird example, but they almost look like Don Bluth characters. Like it almost seems like soupy. Yeah, like the lines sort of aren't well drawn. It's right. it's yeah. I'm not saying that's bad. It's just that's kind of what it reminded me of. It's like it's not rigid. Reminding it's not. It's, it, 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 it. Go ahead. Do these children Don know who Bluth. Don Bluth is? Yeah. Yeah. This is. I've uh, heard the name. Uh, so it's not quite that style, but it's like all dogs go to heaven or Rocka Rockadoodle. Before time, secret of nymph. Yeah. Dragon's Lair. Yeah. 
No. Or is it that yeah, one of them? No, no. Yeah, but that was a game it's, he did some stuff for. It's almost as if like every it's almost as if even the key arts are in betweens. If that makes any sense, like it's, it's it, it emphasizes movement and flow. Now that seems that might seem weird and analog when talking about portraits, but that's what my mind really thought thought about. But yes, yeah. it's a very distinctive art style. Is the uh, and that's the original art for the game is what you're saying from yeah. the original author. Yeah, what I'd say is that obviously the fidelity of the art isn't great, but I think it has a lot of charm that the uh, newer manga gamer art just doesn't really have. And I feel like most people agree with that, even if they just can't stand the art style itself, which is unfortunate. But um, yeah, it's like Kirashi, it's like a classic of the genre, and it even got a an anime adaptation that many people consider to be one of the best horror animes of all time. So it's obviously got a lot of prestige behind it, which is really, uh, really funny when you look at the original product. It's like, it's kind of like a feel good um, sort of uh, deal where it's like, even though you can tell that it was a very amateur work, almost because of the amateur like uh, art style, and it, it, it's weird. Like Higurashi, it's like a huge visual novel, like huge. Like each of the chapters is generally at least like 10 hours long, with, like one exception, but it kind of balances out because the final chapter is like sig- not really significantly longer, but it's long enough that kind of balances out so that the overall like VN is like 70 to 80 hours long, something like that. Which as far as VNs are concerned is definitely very long. Like yeah, I think massive. Yeah, like I'd say most VNs are around 30 to 40 hours generally, and then there's like a few exceptions. So just like RPGs. Yeah. Now do you do you let like the the voice acting like play out? I assume it has voice acting, like Japanese voices when you play? No. Well, okay. So here's the thing about Hikarashi is that, and this is also true for Umineko, I guess, which is the follow-up series. Um, both Higarashi and Umineko do not have voices on the PC version. And there's mods for both of those um, visual novels on PC to add the voice acting in. But there's a little bit of a problem with that. Because when Higurashi was ported to consoles, which also allowed for voice acting to be added, there were slight changes to the script for each of the chapters, and they added in additional chapters as well. So because of that, the um, voice patch for uh, Higurashi on PC isn't perfect. And there's some sections like... The final plan, apparently, for the um, 07th mod, which is what it's called, is to also translate and add in the um, console-only arcs for the uh, visual novel into the game, and then it's like the final plan will be, okay, it's going to be one mod for basically all Higurashi, essentially porting the console versions over the PC, which is fine, because Higurashi... uh, One of these things with VNs is that Sometimes there's all-ages versions, and then there's the 18-plus versions. Higurashi only had an all-ages version, so you don't have to worry about, like, anything that's changed from the PC to the console versions to begin with. But, um, but yeah, the voice acting isn't a one-to-one comparison, even with the patch on PC. Whereas Umineko, it didn't add anything when it got brought from PC to consoles. The only thing they kind of changed was the art style for the portraits, and also, they um, 
added the voice acting. I mean, so the reason why I asked was like, first of all, I'll just, I should say that, you know, I personally don't really need voice acting, you know, English or Japanese for honestly, most games, unless there's like cutscenes. like I'm totally fine. Like when I, the only visual novel sort of game I've ever really played was the original 999. And I thought that game was great. They added voice acting to a later version of it. It's like, well, I don't need it. You know, I just kind of read it like you read a book or something, you know, just <laughs> you imagine the voices in your head. But like you said, it's like 70, that 80 hours. Hard. <laughs> Playing the old, like, uh, anyways, so like you said 70, 80 hours. I'm sort of thinking like, if I, you know, if I'm reading a normal you know, novel sized book, like that's, you know, like a, a weekend of, of reading, if you're reading like many, many hours a day, you know, maybe, a, you know, a half a week or so, like it's not 70 hours to, to read a most novels. <laughs> So I'm just kind of trying to just get an, an idea of how long it is. And I know there's probably some like scene stuff that happens or dialogue where you can't be reading all the time. And I was just, that's why I asked about like the voices. Like if you're letting the voices play out, that of course makes things take a lot longer to play it. So that's why I asked. Yeah. Any other final thoughts at, it's, on Higurashi? It's, like, it's very, very meaty in terms of how much there is. Yeah. To be uh, 70 hours or so. Um. I mentioned this in the review, but in a more general sense, without spoiling, um, Higurashi is very much a story about humanity, both the good and the bad, in the sense that there is absolutely brutal violence that's described. There's murders, there's horror aspects of it, psychological horrors uh, predominantly. But there's also, like, no matter what, there's, like, humanity underpinning it and all of that. Like, for as, for as much horrific, like, violence that's happening, there's also hope. There's also understanding for what drives people insane, what drives people to do these actions. And it's... My, one thing I kind of, like, glossed over in my review, I feel like, is that Ryukishi actually... Um, had a brief career as a civil servant in Japan as a social worker. So parts of Higurashi is very much um, um, influenced by his work as a social worker. And like in some chapters, there's parts about like child abuse. In some chapters, there's parts about like what drives a person to murder, like what goes through people's heads and stuff like that. And it's just, looking at the art style it's not something you'd expect to see in a visual novel like this and it's i think higurashi is definitely one of those stories where it's hard to get into even if you're already a fan of visual novels for a variety of reasons like the fact it's linear and the fact that the art style is the way it is that even for a visual novel it's a very very basic presentation but once you do get into it, there's a reason why it's had so much uh, staying power and why it's a classic. And I do think that it's worth reading at least once. That actually sort of kind of bounces off or reminds me of what I was just talking about with Valkyrie Profile. My description of it may have seemed like it's really dreary and full of despair or whatnot. But even though each story sort of ends in death, it kind of uses that to sort of highlight the value of life in a way. And yeah. so it's like kind of like a similar like you talk about like murder and things like that but there's actually like an underpinning of more positive statements underneath all of it um now james i know you had another game to talk about but while we're on this like uh 
trend of grim and dreary, I really almost kind of want to segue over to what Georges want to talk about. And I'm kind of like grinning oh, just thinking about it. How... <laughs> so how about this? We'll bounce back around. Uh, unless you had any final concluding thoughts about Higurashi, I guess I'll just throw out uh, Reed James's review. He put up his ideas in you know a text form about what he thought about it and why it was important to him. Uh, so, George, outside of the RPG or visual novel space, you've been playing another uh, kind of dreary, poignant title that came out recently. What are your thoughts on The Last of Us Part 2? Have you finished it yet, or are you still working your way through it? Uh, I I did what I tend to do when there's a game I'm pretty excited for. I'll just sort of lock myself in my room for as long as possible and just try and get through it. Uh, phew. Where to start? I finished it quite quickly as well. Well, quite quickly. It's it was still like a twenty-five hour game, but I did that in as much time as I could. Like all my free time kind of went on getting through that. Uh, but a bit of background first, I guess. Uh, so the original Last of Us came out in twenty thirteen, and at the time I was fourteen, which is really weird to think about. But that was sort of like the the most next gen game i've played at the time it was the most oh my god this is what games can do look at this story look at these characters and even at that age where i wasn't like critically playing it wasn't there like oh wow this story beat is fantastic and i like how they've crafted this i was just playing it as a game at the time i still really really loved it and now i've completed it i think five times so once more yeah, I know. I, I don't even, it, it just sort of racked up. So, like, twice on the original version, and then I guess it must be three or four times on the remastered one. Um, and I, I loved the first. And part two, and I don't want to sound hyperbolic because it hasn't been that long since it's released. And I know, especially me, I'm the sort of person I'll finish something and then I'll have the more positive thoughts first, and the negative stuff will usually come later. But you don't want to fall victim to the, uh, the honeymoon period. No, no, exactly. So I don't. I, I hate saying this, but the feeling I got after playing Last of Us Part Two was, okay, that's that's the new bar. That's the new bar for games for me. And like, I I can't. The, the thing is, I can't really even say why because I can't go into spoilers. Like, we probably could get away with it. There are people who are, but I am not going to. I think in a month or so, I'll be like, okay, I, I've been playing Last of Us again. I'll talk about it again, but with more detail. But th- it's weird because what Adam and James talked about, how it's very grim, but underpinning it is humanity. It's the exact same thing in The Last of Us Part Two, And that's what's upsetting to see online with all this sort of social media takedowns and everyone being like, oh, this game's ridiculous. It's all about like death. It's, it's torture porn, which it isn't really. There, obviously, there are bits that are like, oh, Jesus. But what comes through more for me is the characters and the hope and the moments where it's not about that. And that is, to me, more prevalent throughout the whole thing. Uh, I will say this, though, and I think this is my most profound takeaway from the game, uh, besides just loving pretty much everything about it, is that towards the end of the game, no spoilers, obviously, I physically i i didn't want to keep playing i wanted to put the controller down and be like no the story's good as it is i don't want this character to make any stupid decision i don't want to see this happen 
and like that has never happened in the game before like to me ever i've always been like oh okay like i relate to the character this is probably gonna be sad or that's a bad idea but in this case i was literally there like i don't i don't want to see this through i want to i want it to remain in this sort of okay state and obviously that that can't happen but it was that i have not stopped thinking about that since completing it and it's been about a week now <laughs> so you had this like emotional resonance with the character that you hadn't felt even in the original game no it was it was completely new like i, I think it comes as well from playing the first one when i was younger i didn't really get it like I obviously I got that the characters were great and I got that the story's interesting, but you don't really notice all the like little nuances in it. And then playing this now, uh, 21 years old and sort of having a better understanding of stories and games in general, I've sort of like, you notice a lot more and I started like connecting with the characters a lot more. I, I just, oh, it's just, it's, it's incredible. It's such a good game. Um, I hate seeing this this is kind of a different topic altogether, but it's so awful to see a game get taken down like it is, and I kind of I get why. Like, going to be a lot of uh, bad faith sort of criticism of the game for kind of stupid reasons. Like, I'm not I'm not going to say all. No, I'm definitely not saying like all criticism of the game is you know unfounded. But there's there's some people that are like, you know, it's anti SJW or or sorry, it's it's pro SJW or whatever because the character is you know the Ellie is gay or whatever. Um, that people who haven't played the game are just kind of hating on it because you know it's a popular, hyped up whatever game. And the, you know, I want to see criticism. It doesn't it doesn't do it. what they wanted with the story with some of its characters. Yeah, if I want I, I want to see if people are like crit- critical of it, even if they liked it or even if they don't liked it, I want to see like actually substantiated criticism and not just you know stupid stuff like that yeah um, I, completely but agree. I do also understand on a slightly different topic you don't want to talk about spoilers i have not been spoiled on this game and i have not played it so i don't think i can spoil it but i think just from some context i think it sort of gleaned some of the stuff it does that hasn't been shown in marketing and i can understand why it's a spoiler and i won't say yeah. any more than that in case i accidentally give away too much without knowing it but um i've seen comparisons that sort of say like oh it's like this other game, and it's a game I'm familiar with. It's like, oh, I sort of maybe understand what they're going for here. Yeah, but, yeah, I, I um, get. And and of yeah. course, people are invoking the uh, the Last Jedi comparison, which is obviously loaded from the get go. Oh yeah, God. <laughs> as a Star Wars fan as well, it's like, oh no, thinking that the Last was Part Two is perfect by any means. Like that, there are some bits that drag on. By the end of it. I don't know whether just because I was trying to get through it sort of at a reasonable pace to get to the the story's conclusion, it sort of drags a little bit. But I I I think like there's a difference between valid criticisms from people who have played it and looking up plot points online and being like, oh, that's stupid. Because like even if you if you boil down something like I can't think of an example, but if you boil down anything to its basic plot point, so this happens, this happens, this happens, and then you just read that and you don't experience like how it happens or why it happens or the in-between moments. Like, of course that's not going to sound good. Like that's, that's just, I don't understand the criticisms there. Um, I a hundred thousand percent agree with you. Yeah. Like I, I'm pretty like, I hate spoilers. 
like I, I really hate spoilers. So like I, I got spoiled on Last of Us Part Two going into it. But even knowing what I knew, which was like quite a lot, really, like the, that was one of the worst leaks I've ever seen. It still surprised me, like all the way. It's still, it, it still connected with me more than like not quite Kingdom Hearts two level because that is that's like <laughs> worship level. But, um, but well, Kingdom Hearts three probably more. But it is definitely like in the top five games of all time for me. Uh, so about you know, what you said about plot points and like how you can't just string them in in like an order of what happens first and what happens second. I unfortunately think that there's a lot of criticism or like amateur reviews that they judge something purely based on what happens. And I think you see that with The Last of Us or with The Last Jedi, where you'll, you'll watch someone like reviewing an episode of anime or, or, or a movie or a book or a game. And like 60 or 70% of the review or the video is just saying, this is what happens first. And this is what happens second. And I liked it or I didn't like it. And that's, I think, okay. An okay starting point. But I feel like you really have to go deeper in that. Like, you know, what is the motivation for what's happening? What is it leading to? What is it coming out of? What is the context and the framework behind the individual moments? There's so many more interesting ways you can do it. But then some people just say, well, I don't like that X happened to character Y. Therefore, it is bad. Or I did like it. Therefore, it is good. And that's that's an okay you know, framework for a larger discussion. But I just feel like you can't just games, movies, books, anime, whatever. It's way more than just... What happens first? What happens second? What happens That's third? Barely like a high school level like uh, essay argument. It doesn't really have any substance to it. Essay as well is just. It feels like some of the weaker criticism I encounter is when, especially when it's something like a spoiler. Um, when like people just maybe get like a bullet point version of like this is what happened to this character, or maybe even more specifically like this character dies or this character doesn't die, and it's like. To some people, it feels like that's the only thing that matters. Context doesn't matter. Tone doesn't matter. Performances or visuals or anything else doesn't matter. It's just factual. This happens first, this happens second, exactly like you said. And that's, that's just like the crux of the criticism. It's like, I don't like that, that that happened. And it's just, uh, See, I agree with what George is saying about like people basing their opinions just on like this sort of boiled down, like factual here are the plot events in order just explained in a bullet point or something like that. It's very reductive, um, but I, I'm just thinking now, because I'm, I'm like, have I ever been that annoyed at how like a certain plot elements happen? And when, th this is two years ago now, so I'm just going to say, it, at the end of Kingdom Hearts 3, not really, but kind of, Sora does kind of die at the end. Like, now we know he hasn't really, blah blah blah, you can talk about it if you want. But at the end of that, I remember this game I'd waited 10 years for. I'd like played all 30 hours of it in like a couple of short days, just sort of hunkered in my room. And even though so much had happened that I loved, that last bit at the end where it's like, oh yeah, Sora's dead, that made me go, oh my God. And that kind of put me, that put a bit of a downer on it for me. But even then, like, it still wasn't like, okay, I'm going to go on the internet and say I hate this game. I could still walk away and go, no, I loved a lot about that. I just thought that was an unsatisfying ending. And this, I guess, if you want to look at it 
Well, no, I, I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to rationalize it. I just don't think it's fair criticism at all. And then the second thing that I wanted to make, uh, you talked about how when you played The Last of Us Part One, how you played it kind of more surface level, like you enjoyed the game for what it was, but you didn't give it a lot of critical thought. You were 14, you know, you just kind of enjoyed the visuals in the game and the story. And a game that I recently played that I think I connected with more when I replayed it was Xenoblade Chronicles. So obviously I played it 10 years ago when I was 20 and now I played it again when I was 30. Um, and even though I kind of knew all the story beats, I knew what was going on. Like, I feel like I was uh, more emotionally connected to it. I don't know if just I've had more life experiences or I'm just paying more attention. It might just be something simple like that. But uh, I got to the end of that game and I actually felt like I, I was like welling up just, be like, just because of the uh, where the story had gone and how it had, uh, how it had like that happy ending um, that kind of again goes back to the theme of this podcast so far about how you know there is always kind of that hope that glimmers through you know dreary and death and darkness and it seems like that's kind of the world maybe we're in this year it's not to get too poetic but you see all this you see all this like hate in people's hearts or people who are just closed off to the idea of the ideas of people that aren't like them and or they're set in their ways where they believe that everything should be organized in a certain manner in a certain fashion and then when that when that idea is pushed back against they don't they don't bend they just they would rather have they'd rather see it burn down and to have to have these stories like last of us like maybe xenoblade in a smaller sense or like higurashi or even like valkyrie profile where there is that through line where you say you know these are the things that drive our protagonists and why we relate to those. Cause we've seen those same motivations in our own lives. I know I'm getting really kind of on a soliloquy here, but when you're trying to describe about when you're trying to explain why we connect to these sorts of games, I think that's kind of one thing that you lose when you just boil it down to plot points. So I think it all absolutely. kind of ties together in that fashion. I, I absolutely agree. Um, I, I couldn't. The thing is, I I've been asked because when I when I finished it, I started talking to a few friends about it, and they all, a lot of them had said the same thing to me, like, "Oh, I saw online that this happens. Like, I don't really want to play it," and the, I I can't stop people from thinking that. But then they'd ask, they'd be like, "Oh, isn't it just torture porn, or like, is it just too violent?" And I I think for some people it definitely will be. I saw before release a lot of people saying like 2020 just isn't the year for me to be playing this like dreary post-apocalyptic like pandemic quarantine related game and i i kind of get that but i would urge people to try it i would definitely say if you because it is violent it is violent and it is sad but i think it what it tries to do not only in conveying hope and light in people and talking about the cycle of violence, it does really well, but it also kind of is similarly to a game that released years and years ago, which I'm not going to say because then you can make a link and talk about spoilers, but it subverts expectations really, really, really yeah, well. I think, I think I saw that comparison and that sort of spoiled it for me because that other game I am familiar with, it's like, oh, so it's like that. <laughs> so you don't want to say yeah, what it is. It, it sort of is like that. Um, know, knowing what it is, I can say that yeah, technically, if you want to, if you want to 
boil it down to that, it is similar to that game, but the what it does with it is radically different and like a, a million times better. Uh, and I will definitely come back and want to talk about this in a month. I will circle back around and say, oh, I did another playthrough. Here's some like more advanced thoughts because right now I wouldn't want to be that guy that gives details. I don't want to, like Adam. I don't know if Adam's even planning on playing it, but like to even be the guy that says anything related to it that might spoil him on it, I don't want to do that. So just for now, it's fantastic. Uh, Life changing might be a bit extreme, but it's a very very good game. Okay, so this is a kind of maybe a weird follow up here, but we haven't talked about it. Um, so ignoring all the story and character and visual like narrative stuff playing the game how does that compare to the first one <laughs> yes <laughs> i love that um so actually the gameplay is like really really good as well uh I, this is this is the problem when it comes to discussing a story-based game is that people will often and even i i've just done it i've i've just completely ignored the gameplay but the gameplay is actually like i hate to say fun because then you sound a bit psycho but it feels really good so Ellie's not like Joel. She has a lot more mobility. Uh, you can jump now. You can press L1 to dodge. You can squeeze through gaps uh, like in the environment to sort of get around. And it's it reminded me a lot it, on a base level of Metal Gear Solid Five and the stealth the stealth mechanics there because it's very like it's very movement focused. So moving around the environment just feels fantastic. Um, and I feel like it really is like the best gameplay work that Naughty Dog has done. Because like I love Uncharted as well, but what they've done here with movement, like, almost feels better than that. Like it's definitely like a bit more weighty and uh I can't really think of the word, but I've it, seen it, people compare it to uh Red Dead Redemption Two favorably. Uh, First of all, I haven't played I have played RDR two, I have not played Last of Us Two. Um so Red Dead Redemption 2 and Last of Us 2 have spent a lot of focus on their animations, but Red Dead Redemption 2, depending on who you ask, obviously, might say that it's to the game's detriment in terms of how it plays, where everything is so weighty, where it almost feels slow, or it feels like, based on, I don't know, testimony from people who played Last of Us 2, that it doesn't have that problem. And I've seen, like, this, there's, a, there's a Twitter called... Twitter account uh, Sunhee Legend, who all he does is not all he does, but most of what he does is post, you know, just uh, animated gifs. I said oh, it right. Yeah, of of uh, of just gameplay snippets, and he was obviously doing a bunch of Last of Us Two, and it just I saw one where like the character was like diving backwards, and while while they're like prone on their back, they're firing at someone's leg and tossing them all the time or something like that. And it's like, damn, this is there's a lot going on in this game, just as a pure game. Yeah, I, I would say. You are, you're definitely, it's a good comparison point, a pretty good comparison point for multiple reasons, uh, most of which story related I won't go into. But Red Dead Redemption 2 is definitely to its detriment, like the focus on animation. Like it looks fantastic, it looks really lifelike, but it always feels slow because the shooting doesn't really feel that good in that game, anyway. It's not really like you know, the, the commitment to making. Arthur Morgan feel heavy like, feels like it's working against the player at all times whereas in The Last of Us Part 2 uh, Ellie looks really realistic and all of her animations are like really top notch but she never feels slow because of it 
like she'll pick up arrows and put them in her in a bag and like oh that's a cool little detail that actually fit in the bag but it's not like you have to stop and watch her do it and it stops you from playing the game uh but i'd also say, look, one one funny thing i saw this was back when the leaks happened there was like gameplay videos sort of surfacing and someone said oh i really hate that goofy run that ellie does like it's so unrealistic like they're supposed to have people at Naughty Dog working on this. Why is it so dumb? And I'm like, oh, I kind of run like that. It's kind of like a really realistic run. Um, so, yeah, I, gameplay-wise, it's just as good. Just as good as the story. Um, again, I feel like calling it fun might be kind of undermining what it tries to do with its story, but on on a base level of I'm a gamer, I play games to sort of enjoy the gameplay mechanics i think you would probably also enjoy this as well so any final thoughts on uh last of us part two i know i think this has actually been a pretty good discussion for how much tiptoeing we have to do around story uh uh, spoilers um (sighs) when do you think you'll first play through it again i've already started (laughs) (laughs) okay (laughs) i'm going for a, a platinum run like all collectibles uh new game plus sort of thing and that might be, besides Kingdom Hearts 3, but that is probably the quickest I've ever put down a game and gone, I need to do that again. And again, I can't say why. Um, God, reviewing this game must have been a nightmare. Like, I can't talk, even though I don't really have anyone telling me not to, I don't feel like I can talk about 80% of the game. Like, I can give sort of vague allusions to stuff, but just have to take my word that it is as good as I say. I guess. Well, the, for yeah, we kind of we were able, obviously, as a genre site, to just say this is out of scope. We don't have to think about it. Uh, but then on top of that, people who did review it had stipulations from Sony slash Naughty Dog about what they could talk about. So it's kind of like you know what you want to talk about and what you want to omit, and then you know what you are allowed to talk about and what you have to omit. So yeah, I, once you once you see what the leftover space is that you're allowed to like be at when you're writing about it or talking about it in video um it's kind of like man i'm kind of glad we were able to just avoid that so we have had our own like we have had our own like there were there were similar stipulations for um when i reviewed final fantasy 7 remake where it's like i want to talk about this part of the game but i also don't and i want to talk about this part of the game but i but i'm not allowed to it's kind of weird how what parts of the game with that like is a quick aside they basically said you're not allowed to talk about the last chapter. But then obviously oh, well, that, some yeah, of the parts yeah. some of the parts that oh, lead yeah, up into the last chapter you're allowed to talk about, but can you talk about them effectively without talking about where they land or where they lead to? It, see what I mean? How it gets really tricky yeah. really fast. But anyway, yeah, that's I'm a bit of a tangent. Now, but it's like... So yeah, uh that's three dreary games in a row talking about Valkyrie Profile. Uh then talking about what was the second one? Higurashi, and then Last of Us Part Two. So, James, week. please tell me, yeah, please tell me the other game you played this week is really happy and smiley. Um, so I played a bit of Story of Seasons: Friends of Mineral Town. Oh my um, god! Happy and smiley to me. <laughs> yeah. Um. So. Exceed sent out code for this really early, and they sent um, the site both uh, PC and Switch code. 
Uh, Donnie's working on the full review for the game on Switch, and I streamed a little bit of the PC version a few days ago after the preview embargo lifted, which, by the way, the preview embargo was very, very generous because it basically lets you, like, once the preview embargo is up, you can stream whatever you want for the first in-game year, which is a decent chunk of time. Um, so, yeah, uh, I'm of a few minds about this because um, I've never really been a huge fan of the uh, farming simulator genre, so not really a huge fan of Harvest Moon or Story of Seasons, which we were kind of talking about this before we went live on the podcast, but uh, I I'm... I'm, I guess most of the people listening to this podcast are probably already familiar with it. If you're in like this kind of like section of the industry, you probably understand it. But Story of Seasons and Harvest Moon have a bit of an interesting history attached to them. Because Harvest Moon, up until I think, well, one of the 3DS games was actually the localized versions of Bokujo Monogatari which was the original farming simulator game. And what happened is, is that Marvelous, the company that owned the Bokujo Monogatari uh, IP, ended up buying out Xseed. So they decided that instead of giving the license to Bokujo Monogatari to Natsume, it would make more sense to do it in-house and have Xseed handle it. Uh, so what happened is, is that that's what they started doing. But Natsume themselves own the uh, trademark for the Harvest Moon name. So instead of the games continuing to be released under, under the Harvest Moon moniker, Xseed started releasing them under the Story of Seasons brand. Natsume, since obviously Harvest Moon was a huge moneymaker for them, didn't give up the brand, but instead kept publishing Harvest Moon games, but they were actually hiring third-party companies to make sort of knockoffs that they could sell under the Harvest Moon branding themselves. So, bit of a clusterfuck, bit confusing. That's the situation. Yeah, just to state it in a different way, in Japan, all of these games are called Bokujo Monogatari. Like, they're just all one series, and it's no confusion at all. It's, it's all about, like, who localized them in English, and that's where it gets weird. And it's also weird because I think the Harvest Moon games, like, the new ones are actually getting released in Japan under the Harvest Moon branding there too, which is weird. But anyways, point being, it's a clusterfuck. So this game, Story of Seasons Friends of Minerals Town, is actually a remake of a Game Boy Advance game, or technically two, because back in the early days of the Harvest Moon, well, the Harvest Moon slash Bokujo Monogatari franchise, they actually, what they did is they would release separate versions of the game if you wanted to play as a, a male or a female farmer, which was weird. Like, I think the way it worked for, Yeah, and I, I remember reading that for some of the really early ones, there were some, like, significant gameplay changes, which was very sexist. Like, I think it's like a Game Boy one where if you bought the uh, one where you played as a female farmer that once you got married, the game would end. <laughs> I'm, I'm not laughing like that. That's, that's funny. That's, that's a little bit. That's so uh, yeah, that's, I don't know how to describe that. It's like, that, oh man. <laughs> they wouldn't really do that, really. Oh, I guess they did. <laughs> yeah, but uh, thankfully, um, the Game Boy Advance game, 
that this is based off of the uh it, it didn't have that but um so i never was a huge fan of the series but i did have this harvest moon game or this like boku no monogatari game when i was growing up so i actually had experience with this one which is why i was interested in checking out the pc port for the remake and i'm of two minds about it so far because obviously there's a bunch of quality of life features that really does make things a lot easier to get into and i do think that from a mechanical standpoint this is the ideal version you'd want to play in that like right now but i just can't get over the change in art style because the original Game Boy Advance version was obviously sprite-based. It had pixel art, and it had a sort of charm to it. And I look at Story of Seasons, like the remake here, and it's just, it's very bland. It looks almost like a mobile game. It's like, it's 3D, but it's a very, very basic 3D. And there's, ironically enough, it feels like there's a loss of detail because even though it's higher fidelity and it's 3D and whatnot, you're losing some of the intricacies of the actual um, art style. And like some of the character portraits are incredibly different from the Game Boy Advance game. Like some of the uh, character designs are incredibly different. And I don't know, just... It, it, it reminds me of uh, Secret of Mana, like the original Super Nintendo game versus the... The, the 2018 remake which was to be honest pretty terrible but going from sprites to like this kind of cheap looking 3d style i'd say secret of mana made the jump better than this yeah, it, i i understand that too from what i've seen so it's it's i'm just gonna say that sprites are cool i like sprites yeah and um... it's not the same uh it's not the same thing but uh earlier when you were talking about Vector profile and its difference in art between the two versions uh, I was thinking Star Ocean 4. Now, obviously, there's only really one version of that game. Well, that, like, the Western version went to those doll-like 3D models, like very late 360 gen, very awkwardly animated. When the PS3 and the eventual PS4 version had just this typical, more more standard anime art style, which wasn't anything unique, but still like just better by default because it didn't look like... Well, I guess the, the in-game cutscenes are, are going to be awful in that game no matter what, but at least the menu and the UI and the artwork could avoid looking like that. Anyways, just more more discussion about disparate art styles within the same game. Yeah. But um yeah, and it's like it's not even just like the 3D art, but like the portraits especially. I just keep coming back to them because there was a very specific like art style that the portraits abided by in the Game Boy Advance version and the art style that's used for the portraits in the uh Switch PC version is just, I don't like it. I really don't. It's especially weird because the portrait for the main character, like both, well, the at least the normal main character, both the uh, male and female farmer, is much more in line with the original Game Boy Advance artwork, like the key art for that, which makes it just all the weirder when you look at the uh, designs for the main character versus the the new designs for all of the villagers. It's just, it, it, it's so weird. Like, like it, it's funny because like some of these characters, the designs are so different that at first I didn't even recognize them. Like one of the characters in the game is like this, uh, this um, like assistant to the blacksmith called um, 
um, his uh, grandson, Gray, and I saw him and I didn't know who the hell he was. And then I looked it up and it's like, oh, now I recognize him. And it was like such a different art style because he had like this like workman's outfit in the like Game Boy Advance version. He had a hat. And then this one, he just has regular casual clothes, no hat. His eye color is different. His hair color is slightly different. It's just like, that's not the same character at all. I can, I can sort of imagine, because I know this game added a few new characters as well in the remake. And you're like, oh, so this must be a new character. Wait a minute. They're not new at all. <laughs> yeah. And again, this is something that obviously, if it's your first time playing it, you're not going to have this sort of uh, dichotomy that I'm having. But it's just, I don't know. I don't know. Like, I feel like the whole point for a remake is kind of to cash in the nostalgia. So if they're going to change things that dramatically, I'm not sure how much, like, it benefits the entire thing. Well, I should mention, even as someone who hasn't played the original and personally am not really interested in this game, like, just seeing the trailers and stuff for it as well, the art style and 3D style of, like, the game itself, like, even I, even I without that nostalgia, can kind of, you know, I'm, I'm kind of questionable towards it. Like, it looks kind of cheap in a way um i like sprites yeah i guess on on the bright side it will run well because like the minimum pc specs is literally intel integrated graphics so i guess it'll run everywhere which that's something but even if if it was sprite based it would still run on anything so yeah oh no again i I pulled up i pulled up artwork of gray before and after and i see what you mean He's wearing like a workman's overalls and like a full bodysuit in the original game with like a with a hat and like kind of like a glare. And then in the new game, he's got like a blue blazer. Yeah. Like not only is his outfit different, but like just the way he's drawn is also different. Yeah. So I mean, I'll keep playing it, but I mean, obviously, since I'm just kind of covering the PC version, it's not like I have to like get really too deep into the weeds. Like it runs, it has decent PC options. As full Steam input support, like, at first I tried to use my Steam controller, but I was like, oh, it doesn't have a preset to use, like, the uh, right touchpad as a mouse. And I was like, I'm too lazy to set it, up, set it up. But the icons were Steam controller icons. And when I plugged in my Xbox controller, it had Xbox icons. So I'm assuming that that's full Steam input. Otherwise, it wouldn't have the Steam controller, like, icons built into the game. So that's something that's nice. It is cool uh, to see more games utilizing that rather than just the standard uh, X input. I will say that something that's a bit of a missed opportunity, since it is obviously such a lightweight game that it would be able to run at a higher frame rate, uh, it's locked at 60 FPS, which isn't a huge deal, but especially with the next generation consoles making a bigger deal about like 120 FPS and all that sort of stuff, it feels like it would have been nice to have like higher frame rates. But, I mean, 60 FPS is still perfectly fine, so I'm not going to disparage it for that. It's just kind of an offhand comment, whatnot. Yeah, but, it's uh, one of those yeah. things where it's like, does does a farming sim really benefit from over 60 FPS? But it could easily run it over 60 FPS. So it's like, why not? So I see what yeah. you mean. So, yeah, it, it, it's, it's fine. It's just, like, the quality of life features is really the main reason to play this. And I'm still not sure if, for me... The differences in the quality of life feature offsets the um, differences in the visuals. But that's just a personal standpoint. If it's your first time playing it, by all means, play this version because, well, yeah, it's just going to be, from a gameplay perspective, objectively the better version, even if 
I have my problems with it from a more subjective personal standpoint. So yeah. Hey, art style is important. So yeah, I agree. Well, I remember when I was talking about uh, there was a tactics like game that came out uh, last year called Fell Seal Arbiters, Mark, and like it's a really good game, but the art style is admittedly kind of bad. I know that's a subjective statement, but it's just that that's that's the first that's the first impression that anyone gets from your game. So it's not it's not something to just discard immediately. So I guess I'm the last person to go here. Uh, since we've been at this section for for a while, I won't st- stay on too long. And I talked about this game last week in the podcast, but I've continued plowing through um, Fantasy Star Online 2. And I'm, I'm basically through episodes 2 and 3 now. So I am kind of caught up in terms of where the story is at until the August, I believe, drop of episode 4, which was announced in the last couple of weeks. So... I already kind of talked about how the way that the story is told in Fantasy Star Online 2 is very disjointed, very weird. It's actually almost kind of grueling in a way that you keep going to a menu to see a cutscene or do a quick battle over and over and over again. It's not really that engaging or fun, but I will say that about halfway through episode two, it does kind of feel like that the original, either the original story or the way that they're re-representing it in this new truncated form one of those two ways, things they they start to get their feet under them, and it really there's like there's a about there's like a tripping point in episode two, where you end up in like this hour long, uh, story heavy cutscene driven with lots of gameplay alongside of it, where it really feels like damn this feels like a real like a and like a JRPG like a console single player game almost. All the story, all the story stuff in this game is single player, so you can kind of think of it as a single player game in that limited sense. But it really, where everything in episode one was just kind of like setting up general ideas and characters, and it's very loosely connected. And there's there's a, there's a few driving thrusts of plot, but it's not really that much of that. But then in episode two is where it really starts to feel like they're okay. Now even now you've been introduced to these characters. Now you know what the world is set up. Um, so now we're going to actually try to coalesce them into something a little bit more meaningful. And I will say that in most respects, it's still kind of a very thin, poorly presented game with like kind of obvious plot points and like very tropey ideas. Like, so the, the characters in this game are called uh, arcs or arcs operatives. And basically that is the the pool of the player base is that everyone is an arcs operative. And there's like a, there's a set of six operatives that are like the head honchos. They're the council of operatives, basically, and that's very like tropey and archetypey that there's like six. You know, each of them is like a like a flavorful um, kind of representation of their class or their character or whatever. And it starts really like introducing those and like driving the plot forward. It's very kind of anime as a as an adjective, but I will say. I will say, though, that episode two does, even despite all that kind of mudslinging I just did, it does have like some pretty strong points where a revelation is made and I didn't see it coming, but it actually made sense. I'm like, oh, my God, they actually did that. Like that actually I didn't see that coming. Um, (laughs) It feels weird to actually talk about an MMO story from five, six years ago, not wanting to spoil it. But it, it actually it actually like managed to make me feel like that there was this cool interplay between how these characters were connected in a way I wasn't expecting 
and it was in, meaningful to the story. And it actually had like some cool character moments between uh, some some people that you had interacted with a lot, some people that were just kind of on the periphery until that moment. This game has a very large cast, and obviously, as as a consequence of that some of the characters never get really fleshed out. They just kind of act as, oh, he's the hotshot hunter or fighter. That's all he is. That's all that character is. But then you'll have other characters that are um, interwoven so strongly that you spend a lot of time with them and almost feels like, almost feels like they're the protagonist of the game because you're just a voiceless blank slate. Though it, 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 there is a bit of a ramp to it where you spend all of episode one and the first half of episode two, just kind of planting the seeds. And then episode two actually finally shows where they were headed and what, what was actually kind of the, the finish line in terms of where the story was going. And then unfortunately, I think episode three is kind of a step back. Episode three is a lot of the continuation of the plot points in episode two, but it's really kind of hyper-focused onto like a couple specific characters so how much you're going to be able to get from that is just basically like what your affinity to those to that subset of characters was and i the one of the main characters of this series of this MMO is her, a girl named Matoy and she, there she has a very complicated history and a lot of the later plot beats revolve around who she is and where she came from and where she plans on going from here and a lot of drama surrounding that and, but if you don't have a lot of if you don't if you don't have that sort of resonance with her struggles or what she's going through or if you, if you don't think the story is presented in a way that you actually feel much for that the drama there and that's kind of where i was where it's like i was okay with it i just didn't have that deeper level of connection i thought the game was stronger when it utilized the whole wide cast rather than kind of focusing in on this particular subset of of plot devices that i wasn't really super engaged with uh, i still think that it, it was kind of cool to play through several dozen hours of plot in an mmo with full voice acting uh, with an overarching story that's not just a series of you know anecdotes or you know short periphery like little standalone plots it is cohesive from start to finish i don't think it's very strong but i do think it's still kind of laudable that they were able to do that over the course of three independently released episodes originally. Uh, as for the game itself, I do think that it's been kind of, I kind of already made the comparisons last week to how it's more like a hub-based Monster Hunter set in space. And I put a lot of hours into Monster Hunter because I enjoy that style of gameplay. Um, and I've obviously continued to do that. I've played around with a few of the more uh, kind of oblique weapon ideas like i i started playing the game as a force which is basically a, a spell casting character where you there's not a whole lot of depth to it you just cast spells of different elements and enemies have different weaknesses and some of the spells target the enemy some of them are targeted on yourselves like pbaoe is that what that stands for when you when you cast a spell and it like it's centered on where you where you're standing so you do that if enemies are surrounding you if an enemy's away from you you, throw, you fire it in their direction things like that but then I started playing as another class that uses uh, a weapon type called Jet Boots, which is a very mobile sort of weapon where you equip these boots on your feet and you can sort of like glide around as if you're skating in space, you know, kicking and flips. And, you know, it's very active and a lot different style, a lot more different style of play. And it's it's kind of like Monster Hunter in that respect, where the game just feels like a different game as soon as you equip a different weapon and you try to get good at it. So I, I actually spent some time 
in my second and third week with the game, trying out some different ideas there. I guess I just don't want to keep prattling on. Does anyone have any comments about my I'm experience just with say, Star I'm, be honest, I'm not really interested in this game, so it's just kind of like it sounds good for what it is, but it's just not my thing. <laughs> it's it's not really like a well MMOs in general. I haven't really like got into. I always meant to play Fantasy fourteen, but just never got around to it. But uh, and I, I I was gonna say this, but then I was like, I don't know if I'm misinformed but i don't hear many people talking about final fantasy 14's story i Am mean I wrong in that? i spent like basically a solid two months talking about my experience going through the story was was that like like a like it being like a good narrative or just like i think a, the main reason why i was really enjoying final fantasy 14 is that the story was actually impre- like surprisingly great especially once you started getting into the expansions ft so that that's why i didn't say it because i wasn't 100% sure and i, I like when it comes to MMOs, i'm just completely un- unintelligible yeah like exactly. the story especially is just fantastic like unironically yeah my my i have not played final fantasy 14 and i never will um just because it's MMOs aren't my thing, but uh, everyone who's played Final Fantasy XIV that I'm friends with praises the story a lot, and some even say it's the best one in all Final Fantasy. So there you go. I wonder if it's so, indicative of how upskill, how uphill I'm skating when I talk about Fantasy Star, and then the three of you all chime in about Final Fantasy. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, I, Brian, can, I kind of a, now that you're caught up. If uh, Fantasy Star Online 2 story, at least for the Western version, do you think you might try out Final Fantasy XIV? Uh, maybe. Like, I, I might try it academically. That's kind of how I approached Fantasy Star. Is I just kind of wanted to know like what it was. I didn't really have this idea of anything about so, it, really. Why start with Fantasy Star and not Final Fantasy XIV? Because even though I don't know much about MMOs, I know that Final Fantasy XIV is generally considered the best one. Probably because PSO2 is free. Well, actually, not really that. That wasn't really a consideration. I guess the thing about Final Fantasy XIV that has kind of kept me away is that everyone already has an opinion of it, where Fantasy uh, Star was more of a of a clean slate, where I, was, I, I wouldn't be biased going in, or as biased. I would be able just to take it purely as it is, form my own opinion, relay it here, or Final Fantasy XIV, I'm going in like, damn, this one's supposed to be one of the best, you know, and it's supposed yeah. to be really good at this X, Y, and Z. And so many people, like, this is their lifeblood in terms of, like, what they're sharing. us. You know what I mean? Like, there's almost, like, that loaded um, expectations for like it. Monster Hunter World. Like, even though, and again, I, I'm scared to say that to, to you, Brian, because I know you like it so much, but, like, I... I played about eight or ten hours of that and enjoyed it, but never got further. And the thing that's pushed me further and further away is everyone saying, yeah, this is, this game is like 10 out of 10 amazing. And I'm like, oh, God. Like, I, I was enjoying it, but I don't know if I vibed with it that well yet. I guess maybe, like, that's apples to oranges when it's we're comparing, like, MMOs to not a single player, but definitely not an MMO. Want center. And I guess just the general aesthetic of Final Fantasy is more well-worn for me. That It's just that kind of... Uh, that aesthetic, that that Eastern fantasy, the um, how it's kind of like a WoW-like in terms of its more traditional MMO design. 
or fantasy star was more like i don't know what the story is like i don't know what the aesthetic is like i don't even know what the gameplay is like uh i guess it was just more adventurous it felt like where final fantasy is just like okay here's a really good implementation of this specific idea that you're already familiar with so i hope i kind of explained why why i was more drawn to one and not the other I guess it's like going to two restaurants and you, you can either go to this really highly regarded pizza place and you know what pizza is like and you know you have this opinion on pizza but here's a place that's really really good at it or you can go to this place that serves a cuisine from a country you've never been to and you don't know much about it and you and you, and you kind of want to try it and that's where i was with fantasy star where it's like you know what i'm gonna go to that place i'm gonna i'm gonna i might not like it a lot and that's kind of where i am like i thought the story had a lot of pitfalls i think it is kind of grindy in a lot of like ways that is it almost feels like a mobile game in some ways the way like scratch tickets work and, and there's like three or four different types of currency that you have to gather or spend money on so like obviously i don't and and as as a final like bullet point i don't think that highly of it as a whole product but i do think it does a few things really well i will probably try to keep tabs on it i'm not at even that level cap yet so i'll probably at least try to get there so i'm like okay i'm ready for episode four whenever it comes out but then I'll probably shelve it uh, when I get there and just let it sit on. Like I'm not, I'm not gonna make this a daily game. I've, I've or a weekly game. I've got some other games like Monster Hunter or like Guild Wars Two where I log in when there's updates to try to like stay on top of them. I don't know if Fantasy Star is gonna gonna occupy that space as well. But I am kind of glad that I played through it to say experience it. That was a very so good maybe, uh, restaurant one. Yeah. that is also made me angry. <laughs> I'm very sorry. Uh, to try to, to try to say something more positive about it, I do think that Fantasy Star seems like it'd be a really wonderful game if you had like one other person to stick it out with you, where you would both pick different classes that complement each other, and that it, I, that's the way I played through Monster Hunter was where basically with one other person the whole way through, and I was doing like long sword and and uh, light bow gun, and they were doing great sword. And I think Charge Blade. So we both were, it's almost like we were playing parallel games because what was important to one of us was not to the other in terms of like what gear what gear we wanted to grab, how we wanted to approach enemy combat, things like that. Where Monster, or sorry, Fantasy Star, I've been playing mostly single player where you don't have that sense of collaboration in terms of strategizing with another human being on the other side, that sort of stuff. So I think that could make it uh, that could elevate it beyond what my pure single mostly one player experience was all right so i think that's kind of the end of this uh little bit of an extended what we've been playing section but we had a lot of good discussions so i am not uh you know doubting that one bit we've got a few things of heavy hitting news what should we start with Cyberpunk. Oh, it's Cyberpunk. Well, well, maybe we should shout out before we talk about Cyberpunk that this week, actually just a few days ago, uh, Brigandine, The Legend of Renesia, released for Nintendo Switch. Um, None of us have played it, but Chow, who is one of our site writers, uh, wrote up a review for it, and he liked it quite a bit. And the interesting thing about this game is it seems to be like a pure tactical game. It's actually more of a tactical strategy game than like a tactical RPG. And he actually compared it to the game Risk in terms of like the premise and the goal of the game is to literally like conquer this uh, continent. Um, 
it wasn't he the story is pretty light apparently it's a game that really kind of focuses on that tactical element more than like delivering a story but he liked it a lot it's something that seems to be interesting to me um it seems to be reviewing fairly well for people who like that sort of game so check out his review on the website um i will maybe check it out later this year because it seems like I, this is the sort of game before it released it could have come out and completely bombed because it was hard to get like a it was hard for me to like get a grasp on what it was trying to do like pre-release but it seems to be doing well enough in reception that I'm like, you know what? Maybe it, se- it seems to be doing, it seems to be something that seems to do what it's trying to do fairly well. So I'll try, I'll check it out. Again, that's Brigandine Legend of Runerzia. And I played the demo of this and basically Risk is a very apt comparison. It's kind of what it feels like. Obviously just with a JRPG-ish story attached to it. It's like, it will take you hours to get through. I think, I think it's, I think it's, it's, it depends on your mindset going in. I think one campaign is supposed to be like 30, 40 hours or something like that. So, you know, pretty standard length for an RPG-ish game. Based on what I played of the demo, which is obviously a very small snippet, I feel like I wouldn't have a lot of motivation to play through multiple, uh, you know, countries or, or kingdoms, whatever you want to call it. Though, of course, there will be differences. And if you want to do that, you know, it's six times 30. There you go. Enjoy your summer playing this game. But I think I'll get to this at some point. I was interested in enough, obviously, to play the demo. It's just, I guess, right now I wasn't feeling it, so I didn't grab it as it launched. And then, obviously, we already talked about James's review put up on the site for Higurashi When They Cry. And the last feature that we have out is actually something that Anna, Alex Donaldson, our boss, put up. Uh, for cyberpunk so that'll tie into this uh, news bit where obviously they had that uh, nights live from night city streaming uh, kind of gameplay presentation they have a new trailer lots of new screenshots and media they basically had a, a, like a this year's version of the, they, they've kind of done this summer blowout for cyberpunk three years in a row it was first really revealed at 2018 not first revealed but like it, it was first moving into its final marketing stage in 2018 with E3 and then they followed up in 2019. And I think both those years it was press only. And then a few months later they released it for the public. But then obviously this year it's, uh, they moved to a digital event like everyone else in light of everything going on. As part of that, a lot of press did get to go hands on and actually play it for the first time where everything else has been hands off. So, uh, Alex Donaldson was able to do that, and he, since I had seen it at both E3's 2018 and 2019, he asked me to just fire off some questions at him about RPG-related uh, mechanics and design, and he answered those, and we kind of did like a back-and-forth sort of preview for the site, so that's up on the website, and uh, we also have just a news article that shows some of the gameplay footage from their little like 30-minute stream, uh, and then the, the new trailer. So I guess what instead of me just talking over it, what do we think about this new trailer, this new look for uh, Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven, which has obviously just recently been delayed to November. To be honest, um, this sort of game is the kind of game I have a hard time like getting a good picture of it from short gameplay snippets or even like the extended stream or trailers. It's the sort of game I feel like I don't really, I won't really grasp it until I play it for myself because it's supposed to be. You know, so intricate in how it's building this city that you are take that it takes place in, and all the different characters and story permutations and things like that that the game is, you know, reportedly supposed to have. 
Um, and that's those, those, are the sorts, those are sorts of things that are hard to demonstrate in a stream or a trailer. So, and I also feel like even though they've done a few of these blowouts, they actually haven't shown a whole lot. So, yeah, I, um, I kind of just, it's at the point I'm interested enough in this game that I do plan on playing it. I might hate it. There, there, there's some things that they in the marketing that kind of are a little bit questionable to me, but I'm interested enough that I want to try it out. But I kind of just feel like I don't know enough yet to like it's it's more it's there's a big question mark on like how this game actually works that I want to try out. And it's not the sort of thing you can educate yourself purely just through video footage. So you got to go hands on. I thought what, one thing that this trailer did really well, actually, was I was already kind of sold on the first person's perspective. I've played a lot of whenever I play any of those Bethesda RPGs, I play in first person. I played like more I played more uh, immersive sim type games like Prey, which obviously do a lot of interesting things in first person. And then in this trailer, it, it shows all the different sort of cinematic-esque events that can happen from your perspective whether you're like you're punching a mirror or you're throwing up or you're on your back or you're uh just in combat just more generally or sliding down like a building as it's collapsing or something like that that's one thing that it has sold me on is that it really kind of feels i hate to just keep parroting the word immersive but some of these things i feel like would not land as strongly if it was just you're up you're an omniscient camera viewing it from from above or whatever I so I was really uh, sold on the first-person perspective. I would agree with that, and I would say I'm I'm pretty like excited for it. I'm not as excited for it as like everyone else seems to be. I think I'll, I'll definitely be playing it, but I'm not like oh my god, it got delayed till November. That is like preposterous. Like it being delayed to November didn't really bother me in the slightest. Uh, I have to say though that. I don't understand what brain dance is in the law of cyberpunk, so I don't want to back it off like as a concept because like clearly it's important to the game. As a gameplay mechanic, they've really picked it up, and it just does not look interesting. The slightest to me, like it, it just sort of looks like a yeah, that kind of bogged down the presentation, and I wasn't really that interested in it. But they kind of like were really going ham at demonstrating that specific feature. Yeah, like I am. It's clearly important, but. I don't know. I just, I just was not. I was definitely not sold on the gameplay of it. I know this might sound like really dry, but one thing that I kind of want to see, and we've seen like they, there's been a couple times where the main quest that they've been using as marketing, and this is what I think this is the same quest that a lot of the hands-on use, is getting this chip from this gang for this kind of broker named Dex. And what I kind of want to see is I almost want to see like a map or like a flow chart that says, if you make this decision, you go here and you end up in this place. And then if you go here, you do this, like, a, like almost like just I want to almost see like a diagram of basically how because that's what I think the strength of this game is going to lie in, where it actually feels like if you trust this person, this will happen and then this will happen. And then you get this branching point and you might see a completely different side of the story if you go and make other decisions um 
or is it just pure flavor where if you whether or not you're an asshole or you say the, the wrong things you still end up going through the same motions i, I want to see how disparate the outcomes can be because you can kind of pair it like oh there's choice and consequence or you can you can be you know you know you can you can be a, an upfront fighter or you can be stealthy and sneaky but like to me that's not really enough on its own i want to see like how actually it it diverges from the the common point where you start at and where you end at yeah that's kind of what i was getting at before too is like those are the sorts of things that are hard to see in a demo or a trailer um it was also one of the things i was kind of slightly um down on for games like the outer worlds i feel like the quests in that game there's a some small like a or b outcomes but it, they weren't especially intricate in terms of you know different permutations of how things can play out um not just the main storyline but different quests uh one game that actually i think did a really good job at it oddly enough was uh kingdom come deliverance that came out a few years ago that had some really intricate like variations in how quests can play out so much so that it was actually kind of buggy because there was so many different permutations to how you can approach them that certain ones just didn't work like they should have like it wasn't like not all the flags were properly since there's so many different ways things could play out not all the flags were like properly implemented like if you talk to a character at a certain place the game would realize that you had already talked to them or whatever um this game being like a huge budget game in development for years has the potential to to be more like that but maybe without all the bugs so that's kind of what i'm hoping for but like i said it's just hard to see if how well it actually happened how well it's actually been done until you play it right yeah i and actually you, you mentioning um outer worlds kind of the your point about outer worlds not really having like much choice like technically yeah I, I would completely agree like you can really only properly go like two different ways but how you get there can change a little bit i what i'm hoping for cyberpunk is what i liked about outer worlds is where your character feels distinctly you but, like like how in Outer Worlds, when you like dialogue options, never felt like, oh, I'm just gonna be like a like a douche here. But I'm just, this is just like the douche answer. This is sarcastic answer. This is the dumb answer. Like it felt a bit more nuanced like that. And I'm kind of hoping Cyberpunk has that. I think it will do. Um, from the footage. And one one clear difference, obviously, is that Outer Worlds is a silent protagonist, where Outer uh, Cyberpunk is voice. So. I think inherently that'll mean that there'll be fewer options in dialogue. That doesn't mean there's going to be fewer options in general. You might still have just as many. I think the best, the best uh, word of mouth that I could get from this game, I'm probably going to get it day one. Uh, I'm going to get it day one. Or actually, am, am, am I slated to maybe like be interested in reviewing it for the website? We'll see as we get I think you to are November. reviewing it. <laughs> yeah, but we'll see like how what else falls into the holiday season. Uh, to see as you shuffle that around. But I think the best word of mouth a game like this could get is having a couple people in a podcast like this talking about how they did something and people go, I didn't even know you could do that. Or wow, I didn't even realize that, that was an option or that was on the table. And I think Outer Worlds was like that in the very first city where you're talking about those outcasts that had moved out. I forget the name of that place. Um, the very first landing point I think was done really well in terms of Round the way you could... No, that's no, the, the groundbreaker. Yeah, I forget what they're called too, but there was basically like the city and then like the outcast of the city, and there was like three different ways you could resolve that. Edgewater. Yeah, that's it. 
So that's what Brian was getting at. If, the, if, a, if, if Cyberpunk can feel like that all the way through with a, the additional layer of it being carried through that long, I think that'll be an achievement. I do kind of agree with Adam where a lot of the premise of this game, it almost seems very much like gee whiz cyberpunk like that cool wow cool robot meme where it's like i hope they do something interesting with the premise in terms of like the same sort of ideas that you would see in like blade runner or things like that in terms of humanity in terms of the ethical implications of augmentation things like that i'm not saying it has to go super into the weeds there i just hope it does something a little more depth than just neon lights and robotic body parts but I saw we'll that see. tweet about, or that image where it has like the word hotel and half of it is English and half of it is Japanese. And it's just kind of like, <sighs> yeah, okay. yeah, <laughs> it's like, I get it, Japan and cyberpunk and, you know, mixing. And it's just, eh. even though like, it doesn't actually, it's not actually sensible that a sign would be written that way. Just kind of like a surface level. Well, yeah. well I haven't studied this academically, but a lot of cyberpunk, theming kind of grew out of that 80s scare about japan being so high tech or whatever about you know that sort of infringement on uh i guess america's place in the world as a as a power as a leading power so if they touch on that it's possible it could be interesting but it kind of seems like more just like you get it gee whiz neon light japanese inspired <laughs> i hope i hope it's more than surface level I, I just really do but again that's the sort of thing where you just kind of have to play it to see if it does anything interesting with it but anyway i do think the trailer sells the first person's per- perspective really well we obviously have the feature that i talked about um and there's the extended gameplay footage which outside of that brain dancing thing which might bog it down a bit Obviously, just has some more of that pure raw gameplay showing off uh, what this game is going to look like in November. I feel like as well, uh, because you, me being so negative about brain dance, the takeaway here should be that that is the only aspect of the game I've seen so far that doesn't interest me. Like the rest of it looks really good, um, and all the other gameplay footage did to, was show me was like, yeah, I can, I'm going to get this. Like I'm already interested in this. I don't think I need to see much more. Well, that's another way this could end up uh, stronger than Outer Worlds, because one of the Outer Worlds' weaknesses was that it threw a bunch of like perks and consumable items and things at you that you ended up not needing. Maybe yeah. if you were playing like on the absolutely hardest difficulty, you would, but on normal or on, on a traditional playthrough, if you weren't expecting it to be so easy, you just kind of walk through everything. Like it had it had some decent ideas in terms of its narrative design and its story branching, but just as a pure first person game, it was lacking. So I think that's one place where Cyberpunk could easily be uh, a step or two ahead. Yeah, I I, I agree. I, I'm I remember because I, I took a look at the Outer Worlds for the site. I was like really really pleased with Outer Worlds, but I don't think it's perfect. I feel like especially like gameplay wise, it could be improved upon. So if they took all the things. Like, conceptually, I think they will take what I like about the Outer Worlds, not just because it's the Outer Worlds, like, as, as a genre, and a bit bigger and better than course, I'm going to be excited for that. Alright, here is, from the other side of the, of the world, we got a, a localization announcement for East 9 Monstrum Nox, which will be releasing in 2021 for PlayStation 4, Nintendo Switch, and PC. 
Uh, so Adam may correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seems like the original announcement did not specify release windows for those three different platforms. But then underneath the YouTube trailer, it suggested that the PlayStation 4 version would be first, followed by Switch and PC, which is the same kind of cadence that Cold Steel 3 had. Yeah, I think you're right there. It's sort of like the the trails of Cold Steel 4 announcement, where it's coming to PlayStation 4 first, PC and Switch later, but just in this case, it's all in one year, so it's all 2021. But you know, PS4 will probably be you know spring or summer with the other versions fall or winter. Um, we've sort of talked about this before, how like we knew this was going to be localized, like that was pretty much inevitable. It was probably going to be NIS America, but how long would it take? And now we know. So I guess they're working on so this- Cold Steel 4 and this with Cold Steel 4 originally coming out in just a few months, really. Um, about October for that. My original thought was they were maybe going to do like the Cold Steel 3 ports, do Eats 9, and then do Cold Steel 4. So they kind of just like versus what I was expecting, they just flipped the last two games, which makes sense. Um, obviously, I've played Eats 9. So I mean, well, actually, for both Eats 8 and Eats 9, I played them before they got localized. Um, I'm interested to see how the Western fandom feels about this game because. If, if you've read my review, you already know how I feel about East 9. It does some things differently, it does, but overall, I don't think it was quite as good as East 8 for a variety of reasons. But, um, yeah, uh, hopefully at least the PC version's performance is better because, like, one of my main issues with the PS4 version is that it doesn't look like a PS4 exclusive because it was a PS4 exclusive at the time, and it just did not run well. Like... There was tons of hitching, tons of freezes in the main area, the city, and it just, there was no reason for that. They did release some patches and improve things a bit. I haven't actually tested since the latest patch, but um, from what I understand, it still isn't where it should be. It's just better. And then uh, on a related front, when East 8 released for PC, it was originally in kind of a sorry state until it was finally like updated and overhauled. Like It was like a little over a year later, I believe. But then um, these nine, with its announcement listed on the Steam page, is Peter Toman Durante's uh, porting studio, PH3 GmbH, as you know, credited for the release. So they're the ones that, uh, obviously, I think Durante's pedigree is well known. Uh, he was obviously involved in all the Cold Steel ports. So there's a lot to be you know optimistic about in terms of when this does release on PC even if it's after the original PS4 release, that it should be in a pretty damn good state by all precedent, you know, yeah. considered. I mean, like, Durante's, like, has he has that track record. Even before he was doing official ports for things, obviously he did DS Fix. He did, um, I think he did the fix for uh, Deadly Premonition on PC. I think he was behind he also that. Did, he, also did, he also did some tweaking for Final Fantasy XIII's PC port. Um, so, yeah, yeah. he's... He's a known. Uh, he's a known. He's a known. And like, as far as like the ports that he's been directly involved with, I mean, like, there's no reason to doubt that East Nine is going to be a good PC port because like everything that he's touched has been improved by his presence. So that's like, I mean, obviously, it's it's a good feeling to know that it's in good hands. So, 
Um, in terms of the game itself, and based on your import review and other impressions, I know it kind of, from what I can tell, it amps up, you know, character interaction and dialogue and things like that, where East games used to, used to not really have that much focus on that. So it's, I'm not especially excited, like, oh, I guess this game has a really strong dialogue focus like maybe it's really interesting and maybe it'll be really cool but if that dialogue is just kind of bland and boring and i don't you know care for it then it's just going to bog everything down so i will say stuff, the, i'm a little bit hesitant i will say the east nine story is very good and that's probably the game's strongest suit and really the thing that frustrates me the most about east nine is that the pieces were there the like all of the ingredients were there to make a really fantastic follow-up to east eight it's just a variety of things that really kind of held it back. Like for me, the main thing that really made Issei in my mind, a classic, like I think Issei is a classic. I think that in the entire East series, it is the best, if, well, it is the best entry. It's the one that I keep coming back to. I've played it so many times. I think it's, it's, it's the one it, I would suggest to someone as an entry point. Yeah. It's a fantastic game. Uh, one of the main reasons why I enjoyed it so much was because of the world itself and how the world design kind of wrapped around itself. Like, it wasn't an open world, but just the design of the island as you're exploring it and how you could see different parts of the island you had been to and places you're going to be going to visit next. And, like, when you're coming, when you first, like, exit gendarmes or however you pronounce it, and you see the entire northern half of the island, that was just... There's no moments like that in these nine. Like you have, you're like, you basically see the majority of the city from the very beginning and the overall, the actual fields that you eventually visit in these nine, most of them are dull. Like almost all of them are dull. And there's like no set pieces to like the area designs. Unlike these eight, like some of the dungeons are actually pretty impressive, but it's just overall the game itself to a certain extent feels a bit more subdued. I feel like ES8 has a really satisfying, I know Brian doesn't like this term, but gameplay loop where it just like the way you go about like exploring a zone, there's some story stuff. You might find like a new uh, resident for your village that you're creating on this island. Um, new characters, when you gain new abilities, new weapons, new loot to create more weapons and your capability at your base upgrades and things like that. I think it's just a really satisfying game and it kind of all clicks together well. And I think it's Falcom's best modern game. Like I, 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 I like it a lot more than any of the Cold Steel entries, for example. Um, and I actually bought my brother who has no interest or no familiarity with Falcom or at all. Like I actually bought him the Switch version of this game because he has a Switch. And like, you know what? He probably would like this and you don't really require you know, anything else to know to know before you play it. And he really liked it too. I just think it's a really satisfying game. And East 9, I think there's a little bit of a high bar there. <laughs> um, it, tries, it seems like it tries to do something, so it's not just, you know, the same game again sort of thing. It seems like it tries to be a little bit different and maybe some mixed results, but we'll see, I guess. Uh, I guess coming out Does Adol ever get shipwrecked in this game? Are there any ships in it? Adults should stay away from ships. But, uh, yeah. Um, I mean, not much else I can say. If you really want to know my full thoughts on the game, just, like, read the import review. Uh, I I don't know if I'm going to, like, 
the main takeaway for me is that even though I played DZ in Japanese before it came out, like in Western territories, I was like chomping at the bit to replay it almost immediately. Whereas with Fees 9, I'm not sure if I'm going to replay it when it gets localized, at least not immediately. Like I might get it once it comes out on PC and give it another shot there, but it's by no means am I really amped up to replay it. Whereas these eight, it was, I was super excited to replay it. So I think that's the kind of most succinct way of putting my feelings on the game. The opposite of East Nine getting a announced release for 2021, it sounds like another anticipated JRPG is going to be delayed to 2021 or later. Um, so Tales of Arise, which I think a few of us have been kind of eagerly looking forward to seeing if we get more information about this year, uh, has been delayed. It was originally slated as a general 2020, but now it's kind of delayed to an unspecified date. No, I think this was kind of like the writing was on the wall for this. We hadn't seen it. Um, so they uh, released a statement basically talking about how all the complications that we're all familiar with for 2020s, COVID-19, have pushed the expected release window for this game back. So it's one, it's a bummer, but I think it's something that we are all kind of expecting. I don't know if there's any other further comments on Tales of Arise's delay. We did get a new, a new piece of artwork for it, but... Like two trailers for it, weren't there? Yeah, they're actually they really haven't shown much. It had it was announced E three last year, um, and it showed like like really quick clips of gameplay, and those looked promising. It looked like it was sort of real time. The graphics and visuals seem to have gotten a significant bump since Berseria, which remember that was a PS three game originally, um, which is also the most recent game in the series. It's not a remake or a redo. Um, and then it got like a, a TGS Tokyo Game Show trailer a few months later in 2019 that showed more of the story stuff um, and teased maybe another character. But that was the last we saw of it. So it really hasn't, we really haven't seen a lot of it. And <laughs> so that's maybe one reason why people sort of expected maybe a delay as possible because it's like if it's coming out this year, we probably should have seen more by now, right? And we hadn't. So yeah. yeah. Kind of reminds me of the situation with uh, Nino Kuni 2 when that got announced. That I think it was like, was it announced at like PlayStation Experience or something? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was yeah. a PlayStation Experience. They had, like, uh, a pretty yeah. lengthy gameplay trailer when that got announced, and then it didn't come out until like two years later. So it's like, even though it looked like it was pretty far along, so and that's a Bandai Namco game as well. And obviously, like Elden Ring, we haven't even seen gameplay, and it's been over a year now. And we haven't heard anything since the uh, teaser trailer so yeah just to assign a name to it the delay announcement was made by producer yusuke tomozawa just to just to give it more of a less you know ambiguous source for the information it would have been cool to see like a new trailer alongside the announcement but uh if they really are struggling in terms of producing, it might make sense that they're just trying to keep their cards close to their chest. They gave us a nice new artwork, and they basically say that a new launch window update will be provided once they have more details. So we're just kind of at a point where we just, uh, you know, we're in a holding pattern until we see more. Yeah. All right, here is a surprise announcement that I think came out of the NGXP Expo uh, stream. 
uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, Adam, but we have a Switch and Steam port announced for Sheer and the Wanderer, The Tower of Fortune, and Dice of Fate, which I believe that you and James have both played and thought really highly of. Yeah. So was this was this was this a surprise announcement, or what's the context of the port announcement here for for the Sheer and the Wanderer Five? This is the announcement for localizations for both of the ports that have already been announced. So like a while back, like Sheer and the Wanderer. Uh, I'm just going to say 5 Plus because that's the Japanese name. Um, right. Announced for a PC version, like during like the Steam China showcase. And I think that was over a year ago. So we knew that a PC version was in the works back then. And then, like, I think a month ago or something like that, we got information about a Japanese Switch port coming too. And I kind of put two and two together and figured, oh, so probably once that Switch version comes out, the PC version will come out at around the same time. And much like with, um, well, actually, with uh, with Katanakami, we didn't actually get the localization announcement until after we had already received code, which was weird. But I figured that like an like a localization announcement for this was inevitable because the translation already exists, and it's basically just free money. So, yeah, not really a surprise announcement. I fi- I figured that this might be an announcement during NG uh, NG XP. But um, yeah. Did you guys both play this on Vita? Then yeah, is a roguelike, um, mystery dungeon style game, and it originally came out on 3DS in Japan as Shear and the Wanderer Five. That version never got localized. It got like an enhanced port called Five Plus, and that version was localized. But this game doesn't have this series doesn't have the most robust localization history. And so I guess they gave it a subtitle instead rather than calling it five. And it's a long subtitle, the Tower of Fortune and the Dice of Fate, which makes sense for what the game story is. It's just kind of a long title, but it's really good, really solid. I mean, if you don't like roguelike or mystery games or mystery dungeon games, you won't like it. But if you do, it's one of the best ones. Very solid gameplay. It's tough in places. There's a lot of challenge dungeons. Um, It's got like a pretty simple, sweet story attached to it. Really good art style. It's cool. Yep. Like, I mean, just a few months ago, I was talking about my uh, playthrough, my uh, second playthrough on the Vita version. So, I mean, I've already kind of talked about it. It's like a great game. It's like uh, a proper lo- uh, roguelike. I think I mentioned this like back then. It's like when you talk about roguelikes, you have like roguelikes and roguelites. Whereas, like, Sure and the Wanderer, because when you die, you lose essentially everything it's a proper roguelike whereas like something like pokemon mystery dungeon where you keep levels you keep some stuff it's a rogue like it it mostly it's semantics but i know that for some people they care more about those semantics than others so yeah i'm a weenie and i need that little crutch where you carry over something even if you die so even you so you can like progress even like incrementally I, I i think sheeran has a uh you can you can put some stuff in storage and that stuff is kept. But anything that's on you and like your character level stuff, that's not. You can also buy tags for items and if you oh, yeah, like, that, right. Yeah. But obviously that costs money and whatnot. So like I think that's one of the reasons I enjoy the game is that it does offer you like it's kind of like a give and take. Like you can spend some money 
that you could use on other stuff to try and be like, okay, I'm not entirely sure if I'm going to win this run. So I'm just going to give myself some insurance. Yeah. Speaking of roguelikes, it's not on our list to talk about here, but Rogue Legacy uh, 2 was announced to come early access later this summer, I believe. That was a game that I think I got to the second boss. Uh, in the original Rogue Legacy, I think I got to the second boss and then couldn't beat it. <laughs> That's where I got stonewalled. I've always meant to give the first one a go because it's like really good word of mouth, but probably just wait for the second now. All right, on the uh, European RPG front, we have some like publisher acquisitions here. So Focus Home Interactive has acquired Deck 13, who is the developer of Lords of the Fallen and The Surge. So one of those kind of, yeah, Euro RPG, Euro Jank, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, <laughs> I say, say that term endearingly. We mean it. Uh, yeah, it's affectionate. It's endearing. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I know. It's just I, I always love the term. And Focus Home has kind of been kind of on the fringe of being a big player in that RPG space. They published uh, Greedfall, even though Greedfall's development studio, Spiders, ended up being acquired by Big Ben of all people, which I thought was kind of weird. Um, what's Big Ben's new name now? It's N-A-C-O-N. I don't know how you pronounce that. If it's Nasson, it's French. I don't know if it's like Garçon, but it doesn't have that accent. Nasson. Yeah. (laughs) Anyways, uh, so Focus Home also uh, published, um, they published uh, one of the original versions of Divinity Original Sin. um, And now they've got uh, Deck 13 under their their banner. So that, I... I don't think any of us have really thought that strongly of the surge or Lords of the Fallen, but it's always kind of cool to see like where those studios might end up once they have, you know, the experience under their belt. So I've I've played both of the surge games, and I think both games are good, but neither are great. It's kind of like one further step, and it could be great, but they're not. It's actually kind of amusing in a way that um, Focus Home Interactive and Nasson or however you pronounce that, or they're both French, like, publishing houses. They're, they've kind of, uh, it feels like they're sort of in an acquisition war. Like, Nassan recently acquired Spiders that did Greedfall, and now Focus Home is acquiring Deck 13, which is a German studio, actually. It's just like, who can become, who can get more European developing studios under their belts? So, so yeah. Oh, Focus Home also did uh, Vampire. P-Y-R. Oh yeah, they did, they did that. They also they did like uh, a Plague's Tale. So a lot of those a lot of those European developed games. Focus Home is a big player there, so they do a lot of publishing on that front. I'm still waiting for Elex Two. Where is it? Uh, yeah, who just bought, some business side uh, news. Who, who bought uh, Piranha Bytes? I forget. Piranha Bytes is the uh, um, developer of Elex. Let me look this up. It's one of them. Yeah, I think this is important. THQ Nordic acquired them. They're another (laughs) European-based. They're huge, acquiring everybody. Um, Pranobytes is another German studio um, with Eurojank pedigree. But yeah. Yeah, I'm interested to see what that studio does next. So always kind of cool to see. And obviously, I liked Greedfall kind of more than some of its parts. So I'm, I'm always kind of cool to, to kind of keep track on what the guys are doing on the east side of the Atlantic in terms of RPGs. Uh, we also got, finally, a resurgence of, speaking of, uh, isn't this under THQ? 
uh, about Biomutant. Let me yeah, make sure I have that actually correct. Yeah, no, um, so that segue is that, that segue is actually valid. I wasn't misremembering. <laughs> All right, so yeah, Biomutant is published under THQ Nordic, and it kind of was originally slated for release last year, but it kind of went dormant without a word. And uh, we were kind of actually like in our staff chat wondering, like, I wonder when this game will resurface. It's kind of been in like a pending state on our upcoming list for a while now. But uh, during the IGN Expo over the last couple of weeks, they showed a bunch of new footage for it. And I actually think that it looks really kind of nice. Like I thought the game before it was presented in a way that was kind of like muddy and it didn't look that great. It looked really rough around the edges. But then what uh, IGN and THQ have shown in the last week, I am really kind of optimistic on. It looks colorful, it looks fun, it's got like this cool crafting component with the weapons. I actually was describing it earlier as it looks like this weird blend of like Ratchet and Clank, uh, Banjo and Kazooie nuts and bolts of all games in an open world RPG. So it's kind of like a really interesting take on the genre, I think. It's doing some they actually, really interesting new I'm ideas. Sure if you saw the uh, interview, but they actually specifically mentioned Ratchet and Clank as a. Um, inspiration i did not see the interview but i still had the connection in mind so i think that means that they're landing where they want yeah i i think it looks really cool but i've always even in the earlier footage i was like yeah i'm, I'm kind of down for this um one thing we were talking about this is going to derail it a bit we were talking about before is as a this is just a thq thing but as a collector's edition kind of junkie uh Selling a three hundred and fifty pound Biomutant Collector's Edition, and so like probably four hundred dollars for you guys. I don't know if that's good math, but that's about that's right. Crazy, like for a brand new IP, the cost of like almost the cost of what we presume next gen is going to be, like on this one game that's like like not even like that big of a thing. It's, it's, it's like, a I don't know. I'm just looking at it wrong, but that's just weird to me. Yeah, it's also not only a new IP, but it's a, a new studio. So they have like, well, the game, what they've shown so far is interesting. They have no pedigree behind it um, as a studio. Speaking yeah. of, by the way, it's another European studio. It's uh, Swedish this time. Um, but yeah, it's like, I can understand collector's editions for like popular franchises or from studios that are like, you know, well-liked, but this is like a brand new game from a brand new studio. And I, I couldn't imagine putting $300 down for it. If if you do, it's like hope the game doesn't suck. That's a lot of <laughs> like stuff. I was really excited for uh, most recently Battlefield. This is like I say, this is just the THQ thing. No, no one else does like 350 pound collector's editions, but THQ have been doing them loads. So they just they did one for Battlefield Bikini Bottom, a game I was I was really excited for, and like even a song I know I enjoy, I would never spend that much money, like. Even Kingdom Hearts. If you really, if you give me that silly version that had like Toy Story, Sora, Donald, and Goofy for however much that was, that's like that's crazy. So I just, it's just a little segue that makes me laugh. Yeah, but like the footage of this game, I think looks pretty neat. It shows him like it's mo it's a third person open world as far as I know, action RPG. It has a bunch of like characters that are like anthropomorphized creature type things. No, I want I want to say animals, but they're kind of more like mutants. It almost seems like it kind of got that Dreamworks or Dreamworks style aesthetic. There's like some cool footage they of them like fighting like a, a giant... uh, kung fu panda. 
<laughs> oh well that's another that's another like i said uh that shines through in the footage and i didn't see the interview so i think they're it's it's a good showing for the game which i was kind of middling on last week so or not last week last year so i'll give it a look we've got the news up on the site i think it looks promising they did not give a release window they sort of refused to n- not even say this year but of course this year is you know a big unknown it's, it's hard to say anything concretely will happened this year but they basically still don't know when it's going to release they kind of just said when we're done or when we're happy with it we also got a new features trailer for final fantasy crystal chronicle remastered um so i did watch this trailer it's like a five minute trailer that just kind of talks about the premise of the game so anyone that's already familiar with it it's not anything new but wasn't there some details about the, the freemium version of this game that you kind of alluded to with the mobile version, Adam? But will that also be available on Switch and PS4? The trailer is um, shows a lot of the features as well as new features. In fact, I think it's called a new features trailer. And it talks about things that kind of came out in Japanese press um, a week or two back, about like the mimic system, the hard mode, new character like outfits and designs. Like there's a new one for each class you can, or race you can be and things like that um but they also announced a light version and this is basically how it works is, yeah this is what i was talking about this thing this was what was yeah, new to me this version. yeah this is brand new um they just announced this yesterday i think um so you can get a game version of the game for free that'll launch alongside the base game when it launches in late august and that free version allows you to play the first three dungeons of the game and there's 13 in total so you know roughly a quarter um for free and then if you have the free version and you you join up with a host who owns the full game that like actually purchased the game you can actually then play through the the whole game granted that you're in a party with a host who has purchased the game so effectively what that means is with one purchased copy four people can play together and go through the game you know for the purchase for the price of one and it's all cross-play, so you don't even have to like make sure you all have like the Switch version or the PS4 version. You can just, you know, one person buys it, three other people get a demo version of whichever one they want, and then you play through it. So that's pretty cool, I think. That's awesome. Like, we we've been talking that we all kind of want to play this. Like, seems like a pretty good avenue to do it. Yeah. This. Uh... I think the the problem will probably be just like with the original release, although maybe a little easier this time is finding the time where we're all free and we can all play it. Um, yeah. It does seem, it's a little bit of a bummer that it seems like any of the murmurs about the game having any sort of local co-op don't seem to be there. I've seen some people say they want to play with their friends or family at home. And it seems like you can't do that unless you like have two people, two switches or whatever. But Still, this game is a multiplayer game. That's kind of the way it's designed. So that's good for that. It seems to have this new light version that kind of facilitates that a bit. I think I talked about this when we were talking about remasters and remakes back in the times of like Final Fantasy VII and uh, Xenoblade. And I had mentioned something where it's like, sometimes I just want a game to be re-released in a convenient-to-play fashion like sometimes people talk about, oh, some studios will just up the resolution and remaster it and add a, add a bell or a whistle here. And then 
they'll they'll kind of say that in like a disparaging tone. But for a game for like Crystal Chronicles, that's kind of like all I wanted was make it convenient to play, give it a nice new coat of paint, like up-res it. Like I didn't need it to be completely overhauled. I, I didn't. I did not need Crystal Chronicles remake. Remastered was absolutely fine. And for some games, that's all I want. This is actually one of the more exciting games for me on my list for the back half of the year. So only a couple months away. We got two uh, release date announcements within the last week. So I don't think there's a ton of discussion to have on here. These are games that we knew were coming, but didn't have release dates. The first one is Legend of Heroes Trails of Cold Steel 4, which we did kind of talk about briefly when we talked about East 9. Uh, it will release on PlayStation 4 on October 27th for both North America and Europe. Uh, the PC and the Switch versions will come sometime in 2021. So probably in early spring, as we've seen with Cold Steel this year. So I don't really know if there's too much more to say about that. That's roughly a year after the previous game. Yeah. So I think the previous game was actually announced for September and then delayed to October. So yeah. this game yeah. is just October from the get-go. Have any last minute delays similar uh, similarly? I'm curious, especially since uh, like I mean they're both like similar like sizes text wise, and Cold Steel Three was huge. So I don't know. So so we'll get uh, Cold Steel this year, East Nine next year, and then I guess we can start asking for Hajimari. either Hajimari or the Kai versions of Crossbow games. We'll see. We also got a release date announcement for Death and Request 2. It's coming out on August 25th in North America, August 28th in Europe. I'm not actually sure who, who reviewed the original game for us. Has anyone else played Death and Request here? Uh, um, James? I, yeah. I think my oh, main Oh, did problem, James review the original? Well, um, Chow reviewed the PS4 version. I reviewed the PC port. Uh, so... Um, what I do want to say about uh, Death End Request is that I actually think that the story for the original one is actually really good. The problem is, is that the Idea Factory uh, gameplay kind of gets in the way of everything. I, and I've talked with Chow, like, and we both kind of agree on that, that, the, that it really should have just been a visual novel because the gameplay really doesn't do anything for the experience and it just gets in the way of the story. So It's uh, written by the uh, corpse writer. Corpse. corpse. What's it called? Corpse Party Writer. That's what I wanted to say. So obviously, yeah. Corpse Party is a series of essentially, well, not really visual novels, but similar, similar. So, I mean, no, no so, big surprise. So my thought is that most Idea Factory games are kind of these, you know, fan service, anime, you know, tongue-in-cheek sort of games. And I don't mean that as a criticism. That's clearly what they're, like, trying to be. And I think that's what the audience wants them to be. But from what I heard, Death End Request like the first one, some people have claimed that that's probably the best game that Idea Factory Sense or Compile Heart has put out. Like, consider, like, actually, like, legitimately good in, in ways, maybe at least in the story section of things. Yeah. Um, some people might argue that Fairy Fencer is better, but it feels like that game was a high watermark for that studio. So that's yeah. what, that was what I gathered anyway. I'm definitely not going to put my name down to review the sequel, though, after... Uh... Arc of Alchemist. Yeah. And the last thing on the list is a game announcement that also came out of that new Game Plus Expo stream. 
Uh, this is Fallen Legion Revenants, which is being published by Nice America and de developed by a studio called Yummy Tummy, according to what Adam put here on the sidebar. Um, and <laughs> I watched this. Tra I watched this trailer uh, before the podcast, and I didn't really have any lot of thoughts about it. But now that you've talked about Valky Profile and Indivisible, and you described those games to me, that's what this game looks like to me, as kind of in the same vein of multiple characters on the screen, each is controlled by a different face button in an RPG slash semi-platformer sort of way. Yeah, from what I know of this game, it's similar to that, right? Yeah. Unfortunately, so this game is a sequel to Fallen Legion Rise of Glory, or Rise to Glory, and it's kind of like this indie RPG that NIS America is publishing, but frankly, the first game seemed to not review that greatly. It's, it just seemed like it was kind of hit or miss, or more miss than hit there. But they're releasing a sequel. Maybe it'll be good, but it doesn't really have a good, uh, you know, there's no exact reason to get super excited about this yet because they haven't really proven themselves as developer. But yep, that's Fallen Legion Revenants, a Valkyrie profile slash indivisible type game announced at New Game Plus Expo coming to Switch and PS4 in 2021. So still want to kind of highlight it as a game. To, we have a trailer for it. Um, just keep an eye out on in case it seems like it's up your alley. And that kind of covers it for RPG-related news. I think there was some other, like, studio, not studio, just industry news, like Mixer has now been dropped from Microsoft and is being transferred over to Facebook Gaming. I don't know if any of us are really, like, following that very much, but that was kind of, like, the big heavy hitter for um, for this week. This is kind There's of also been a lot... As well. like yeah, and that's after this is months after they gave a bunch of those streamers like huge contracts to switch from Twitch to Mixer. So some of those guys were able to break out of their contracts and make bank. There was also and that then obviously, Avengers stream this week that we didn't talk about. Oh, yeah. And then uh, George did put up a little bit of the uh, summary of the details there. Oh, yeah. Uh, George, what do you see in the Avengers stream that you're interested in? Because I'm not really interested in this. I haven't seen the Marvel movies. Uh, so what, what I, do you think about what they showed? I'm a big fan of um, Marvel and DC, just superheroes in general. Uh, it's probably not a good sign that I completely forgot that that happened. Um, <laughs> it looks... I'm not a big fan of games as a, service, as a service, so like, I don't get into games where I'm going to have to put in hundreds of hours, but the concept of a superhero version of that is probably the most likely like game that will get me into the sort of games of service thing. Uh, gameplay wise, I don't know. It's so I'm excited to customize my hero, and I think the story has some like Ms. Marvel being in it is pretty cool. Uh, I like the actors for the for all the characters. Uh, it seems like it the the story does have me interested from what they've shown. Gameplay looks like serviceable to fun. Like Iron Man looks really fun. Like every character except for four, it looks really boring and clunky. Uh, they all look interesting. Like it's weird because even though they showed off quite a bit of footage there, they still haven't really like sat down and gone, okay, here's like here's what you're really going to be doing. Like I don't feel like I got that of impression from the gameplay they showed. Like, I guess, I guess what you can get from this is that I'm mainly interested because I'm a a Marvel fanboy, and 
that's about it. Like, it, it still looks it, it looks okay so far. Um, I'm hoping there's a lot more depth in what they've shown than the customizing your character and oh, the promise that your Iron Man will play different to my Iron Man. Like, if that comes through, then fantastic. But if not, then let's hope story's good. <laughs> So I haven't, obviously, I'm coming from a place of ignorance here because I've not watched most of the movies. And I've only seen what this game, what they showed, like, the footage last year. Just seems like a modern take on the movie tie-in IP game, which is, I'm sure it'll be fine. It'll serve its purpose. It'll be a marketable game for the holidays with a recognizable branding. And it's probably, I'm assuming, well-made. It'll just be interesting to see if people have any, any stronger take than that. It doesn't seem finished. Like, it has been in development for quite a while, and prior to seeing the footage, if you said, oh, it's coming out in September, I'd be like, yeah, like that makes sense. Like, it's been, we've been hearing about this for quite a while, but seeing it, I'm like, oh, I don't know, maybe like a, maybe wait till next gen, like, give it some more time to cook, because it just looks floaty at the moment. Hmm. I, I think maybe that's just a gameplay thing, like, maybe that's just how it feels, like, I can't say if that is just a lack of development or what, but let's see how it turns out. I'm not, I'm, we all know I'm pretty bad with getting on a hype train. So like before something comes out. If you're not on the hype train for this, that makes me really <laughs> like stand back and be like, whoa. Yeah, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. And that's probably as like low hype as I go. <laughs> all right. But other than that, I think that covers it for this week. So that was a lot of dialogue and a lot of news about a lot of games that are coming out. We started out bleak, but we ended up talking about some really promising games that uh, are coming out over the horizon, if not this year, then next. And the Avengers. <laughs> yeah, and that game has a tail end uh, bookend for it. So any other final thoughts before we start wrapping this up from anyone? It's the last of us part two. Let's do it. Don't review it online if you haven't played it. Just give it a go. Trust me. Games are more than a series of plot points in order. There you go. Exactly. Well, okay. So we have all those features that we mentioned up on the site. Uh, Higurashi review, uh, Cyberpunk feature, and then obviously all the news stories from all the announcements that we talked about. Uh, you can find us on our website, rpgsite.net. You can find us on our Twitter page, at rpgsite. Find us on our YouTube channel, uh, RPG site net, Facebook, RPG, RPG site net. You can join us in our discord channel from the page and from the link on the header in our homepage. And we will be here next week as we seemingly are every week. So until then, take care.